Mass Effect to me is kind of a shining example of what video games are capable of in terms of storytelling. I was an avid gamer growing up and stepped away from gaming before I went to college to focus on my studies. A couple of years down the line, my brother bought me a copy of Mass Effect 2 for my birthday, and it completely transformed my idea of what a game could be. Uh, I got so hooked into it that I it's one of the first games I had to play over and over and over again. The Mass Effect trilogy is defined by little things, like helping a man get his wife's body back from the Alliance in Mass Effect 1, or protecting a Quarian on her pilgrimage from cops in Mass Effect 2. It was the Mass Effect series that really showed me the depth of which you could write stories, create characters, create relationships, and it's the first time I ever felt seen in anywhere, any form, at any point on the queer spectrum. Where a lot of games get hung up on adhering to storytelling tools and styles and me mechanisms as movies and comics and books, Mass Effect kind of took it a step further and was able to craft this world that you not only observed and, and watched, but also took part in and felt a certain ownership over. It's not something that I had ever experienced in a game before. And by the time Mass Effect 3 rolled around, I really felt like I had been on this long, sweeping, interstellar journey with my Commander Shepard. The sheer ambition and craftsmanship that went into constructing such a living world filled with characters you give a damn about. Miranda Lawson. Garrus Vicarian. Grunt. I love my lizard son. Um, even though she's not necessarily the character that I'm the most attracted to in any way, she's the character that I relate to the most, and I think she's been through a lot and I always try and get her a happy ending <laughs> when I play the game. Here's to you, Garrus. There is no Shepherd without Vicarian. I don't think there's ever been a, and maybe never will be again, a series that so finely combines cinematic inspirations with the interactivity of this medium in such a powerful way. Mass Effect isn't perfect. It is, however, adept at making you attached to the world and its characters through the briefest of scenes. It became an extension of myself. I don't know, that's just something that's really special and rare to see. This is uh, my call for that remaster, guys. Just 1, 2, and 3. Put it all on the PS4, PS5 if you have to. I really love these games more than I can possibly explain. Maybe it doesn't necessarily hold up as well as, as other games might. However, I still think that Mass Effect itself is a masterpiece, and I think that a lot of the different successes that it has are timeless and are something that I hope RPGs and, and games in general continue to look to as an example of how to tell an amazing story. The reason I write about games, the reason I try and make games, the reason I love games is because of Mass Effect. Thank you, Bioware, for all the little moments and so much more.
This is the this is the end of Normandy FM. Not really, but the the end of Normandy FM as as we know it in the Shepherd universe in the Shepherd trilogy. This is this is the end. This is what we started this whole thing to do. I know. It's I, I almost feel like we've been working up towards this episode for I mean, literal weeks. I mean, we literally have been working towards this forever, but it feels like this was always the end goal in mind when we started this thing was we were always kind of thinking about, oh my God, you know, we're going to eventually get to the ending of Mass Effect 3. Mm -hmm. Uh, For those of you who are, for some reason, tuning in just now, A, welcome. B, the hell are you doing? Go listen to the other episodes. (laughs) Uh, C, this is Normandy FM, a Mass Effect retrospective podcast uh, I am Eric Van Allen. Kenneth Shepard is my co-host, Hi. and we are at the end. You know, this is we are talking about the ending of Mass Effect Three today. If for some reason you are spoiler sensitive and you're tuning into this, uh, go play the ending of Mass Effect Three and come back. But uh, this it's been is seven years. I, you had a lot of time. Yeah, this is like this is also a little freeing because I feel like for every episode we've had, we've always had to kind of be like, oh well, we're not going to talk about that just yet, or oh, mm-hmm. you know, we'll bring that up later. This is no holds barred. This is everything. We're we're yeah. doing it all. We're doing it all live. It's 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 amazing. I I'm very excited to be doing this, Ken. I'm I I have a lot of thoughts. I have takes. I hope you mm. brought yours. Always, always. So I feel like uh, we don't. I I want to like quickly touch on something though yes so we're going to talk about like the grander controversy of mass effect 3 but i think it's important for us to right now talk about seven years ago and where we were in life and seven years ago so seven years first would have played mass effect 3 Mm -hmm. my question to you well well, let's talk just kind of generally how did you feel after you finished this game boy seven years ago i'm trying to think of where i even would have been uh, I would have still been in college, mm-hmm. and I I'm trying to remember the exact feelings I had about it because I remember I got it at midnight. That was when I was kind of in my big phase of like going to the midnight openings and getting yeah. like games. Oh, I got I got some stories about that for sure. Yeah, and this was like if we're getting real personal here on the podcast, as as we sometimes do. Uh, I was very much at a point in my life where. I was kind of using games to fill a void a little bit. Um, I, I was kind of lost as, as to where I wanted to be uh, mm-hmm. in college. Like, I, I was one of the kids who went to college because that's what you did, right? Um, right? And so I was really feeling it that year. And I ended up just spending a lot of time filling that with whatever I felt could fill the void. And one of those mm-hmm. things was video games. And... Uh, buying those release day games and arguing about them online and getting like really into it like i understand why people get so heated about games i don't condone it but i understand it uh because i've been there before because you when you start to develop an identity around a coping mechanism like that uh you start to feel very strongly about things that you shouldn't have such visceral reactions to Mm -hmm. uh and Despite all this, I was not one of the people who was rallying against the Mass Effect 3 ending, mm-hmm. which I still feel pretty good about. Um, but I do remember finishing it, and f- it felt very... 
I don't know if bittersweet is the right word mm. because there were a lot of moments that I really cherished, like, and we've talked about them already on the podcast. You know, right. things like Ranok, things like you know, Morden at the top of the tower, and, so, and you have to keep in mind, like, I played this game at launch and never touched the single player part of it again until now. This was my second ever playthrough all the way through of Mass Effect 3. And I definitely probably appreciate different things I did back then. Uh, I know for a fact that I missed out on some side missions and stuff, either because I didn't have the DLC or I just missed some things. And I, I came away from it just kind of feeling like, well, I guess that's the end of Mass Effect. And I think that always kind of dulled my love of it because as good as the moments in this game were at the time, I just felt like Mass Effect 2 ended on somehow a brighter note because it ended with Shepard flying off into the sunset, being like, there's still a war to fight out there. And the way Mass Effect 3 at least originally ended was very much like the world is going to go on and Shepard is not a part of it. And Mm. even if you got that special ending... Uh, which we will talk about, um, you still kind of felt like it was a world that was moving on without Shepard, and there was no more room left to tell a story within this universe, which they gradually proved was wrong (laughs) and did more storytelling in and then moved on to other things. But I definitely felt... I've been trying to avoid using the word let down because I don't feel I was let down. I just felt like I sort of experienced a thing that was a little bit sad and a little bit tough to deal with but overall it's like when you watch like a really good television series and it finally ends and it's not like the pitch perfect ending that you've always wanted but it is over and you kind of cherish the whole of the time you spent with it rather than the specific ending that's about the best i can get there for how i felt at the time And then I moved on to another game because I was in that sort of place where I was just constantly moving through, like, games at a rapid pace. And, I, God, I played so many video games at that time. <laughs> How about you, Ken? So, in some ways, you, Eric, you and I are fucking kindred spirits because I was in that exact same place. Because I, <laughs> I was in my first year of college and... I, at the time, I was, like, a music major, and, like, so I obviously, like, went on, like, a very different path than I ended up. Wait, were we both music majors that then pivoted into journalism? Sounds like That's amazing. That's beautiful. No, it, was, it was meant to be. It was meant to be. <laughs> but for me, like, where you say it was kind of, like, it was this thing that, like, you, you say you weren't necessarily let down, but it was kind of this bittersweet eh, moment to you and then you just moved on to the next thing I on like I couldn't have been the more opposite of that because like I've said you know over the course of this podcast Mass Effect was like the series for me and like even looking back on it now I realized that like loving and looking forward to the series was like maybe something that even suppressed my depression at a younger mm. age and because like it's like I can trace all the I can trace it back to when everything went wrong when was like when Mass Effect was over, but um, for me, and we'll talk you know about the specifics later. The ending of Mass Effect Three was like perfect for what I wanted, and you know you know looking back I kind of feel like you know these things might have benefited from things that came from like the extended cut and Leviathan, but like from what I wanted out of a Mass Effect Three ending like it 
I couldn't have gotten something that was more crafted in a way that fit what I wanted to, like how I wanted to say goodbye to the series and where I wanted everything kind of left for me to sort of not necessarily imagine in like I don't want to say imagine like I pretended it ended in a certain way but imagine sort of like I could imagine what came next and I didn't need that spelled out for me and like that has kind of been you know an ongoing theme throughout me playing Mastic Series is like me kind of like having to fill in the blanks of you know sort of the ambiguity of things that like allowed me to imagine that Shepard was this kind of person or wanted these things and so from that perspective I wasn't let down at all and so it was like to, to like you know you, you finish the game you shut down on your Xbox and then you go on the internet and you like you know see how the community is reacting and just like find this awful toxicity it it didn't I, like to say it like made me more emboldened than what I thought that's not necessarily accurate but it made me kind of like more defensive about it if that makes sense like cause like you got everyone in the world being like oh you're this ending was terrible and you're stupid for liking it it's like but everything that you're saying like maybe we just you know we're coming from the series in two different ways which again we'll talk about more but you know, seven years ago, when the game first came out, like, I finished the game, and, like, it wouldn't, I couldn't have even fathomed what was going to happen in the coming months. So, it was, it was a great place for it to all cap off for me, um, and it, I'm kind of, like, I'm glad that we have Normandy FM now, so, like, because, like I said, well, I wasn't even considering, uh, like, writing and talking about games as a career, so, like, I didn't never had an outlet to do that, so... I'm, I'm going to get on some soapboxes in the next however many hours we're going to be here. You, that I can tell you. Um, it's not so. too many hours. I, You know, I'd, I'd like to sleep at some point. <laughs> you're you're about to get seven years worth of pent-up feelings just thrust upon you. Uh, so let's leave, let's leave some of the controversy talk for the end, because I right. think that'll be a more natural place to talk about it. Uh, to start with... Let's kind of set the scene because this doesn't necessarily start at London, which is the you know the actual ending of Mass Effect Three, but it starts with the Cerberus base. And once we do the approach on the Cerberus base, they're very much like, "Hey, you know, once we do this, we've played our hand, and we got to follow it through to the end. So if you got anything else you need to do, Shepard, now's the time to do it." And I'm pretty sure once the game ends, it it kind of dumps you back out to the the Mass Effect world, I think it dumps you right before the Cerberus HQ. Mm-hmm. I don't think it dumps you uh, before Earth, but right. Um, we got to assault the Cerberus HQ because they've got the Prothean VI that we need to get the catalyst to finally make the the Crucible work. And I think it's it's in this section where you're. You know, you, so you start off with the big assault on Cerberus HQ. Hold and up, hold up, hold up. What do we do before we go to Cerberus HQ? Did the hanky-panky happen before Cerberus HQ? It does. It oh, does. I always thought it happened. See, and I literally just played it. For some reason in my head, I had it that it happened after Cerberus HQ before Earth. Okay. So that's when the hanky-panky happens. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um... Before we depart for Cerberus HQ, uh, we do have a little bit of hanky-panky with our our companion of choice, which if people were watching the Twitch stream for the hour that it was up when I was playing over the weekend, 
uh, I had to black out the screen for, which I was very grateful that I did, <laughs> because that got a lot more graphic than I remember it ever getting. Um, mm. And I don't know if your experience was the same, Ken, uh, how much you saw on your end. Uh, so it's not as much, but like enough, I'll say that. Um, so there's an interesting thing that we should probably talk about before we talk about the specifics of our relationship, which was Liara and Kaden. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few instances that we should probably talk about. Like we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up in the end when we talk about it. There are a couple instances where it feels like certain relationships got the short end of the stick, uh, especially like of these scenes and some things that happen later. So I want to point out that Garrus, Tally, Trainer, and Cortez, all four of them get very standard kind of uh, cut-and-paste scenes where all they get is they walk in and they're like, hey, you need somebody to hang out with you until it's time to go? And then... Shepard says oh, yes, they make so out a little bit. Get, like the additional dialogues and stuff like that that right. we would have gotten. Right. And it's and like there's no actual sex scene, it's a fade to black, and then they wake up, you know, in their underwear. Um so it's a weird thing to say. Like they put a lot of work into Liara, Caden, and Ashley's scenes, but not those four. I and almost kind of understand that because those are the mass effect one romances even though i guess caden for you would not have been a mass effect one romance but um that might have just been a carryover from the fact that it could have been for a femship but right it's like they put the, the extra work in because like these are the characters that like you theoretically like had this long-standing like trilogy long uh love story with right. but also like i i just i and they they kind of still do that in Andromeda, like not quite as much because like they don't have like the copy and pasted scenes. Like every character gets their own individual scene and set up and whatever have you. But here it's like very much along the lines of like the Mass Effect one thing where like it it the scene is the same regardless of who is showing up at Shepard's quarters. Um, the, the and then, other... then like. What's that? I was just going to say, the other thing that still kind of bothers me about Mass Effect love scenes is that they always happen at the end. Like, like clockwork. You know, it's... Not in Andromeda. Not in Andromeda. Yeah. So, I'm looking forward to seeing how that changes, but I I was recently on Axe of the Blood God, which is uh, US Gamers uh, RPG podcast. If you're tuning in from listening to that, thank you very much. Welcome. Um, and we talked a lot about romance and RPGs in that episode, and... I kept thinking about how Dragon Age, especially 2 and Inquisition, you know, had those love scenes that did not necessarily have to happen at the end Mm -hmm. of the game. Like, in Dragon Age 2, you, quote-unquote, like, consummate your relationship at the end of the first act. And, or, the first or the second act, whenever you move into the It's, like, midway through the second act. Okay, yeah. Um, You have that then, and then Inquisition, I'm pretty sure, like, by halfway through the game, you could have seen, like, all, like, the iron, infamous iron bowl scene and stuff like that. Uh, And that's all dependent on, like, which character you're dating, but. Right. Because, like, I I had gotten through, like, it was weird, because, like, that game felt very front-loaded as well. Like, depending on who you were with, because, like, I was with Dorian, and, like, within my first night of playing, I was, like, basically I'd seen it all. Yeah. So... And, yeah, and you know, like anything that came later, like would be informed by the relationship. But like, we were well established, like <laughs> just a few hours in, it felt like. And and I think there's like merit to both sides of that because there is like, there's something special about 
at least the Liara scene and the Caden scene. I've not seen the Ashley scene, actually. Um, I did check up on the Caden scene uh, for you, just so I was informed. Uh, <laughs> and it's definitely, like, way more fleshed out. Like, the fact that you have this dialogue back and forth that you can choose to say whether I love you back and, and things like that. Um, right. It's that all, I think, really adds to the investment yeah. that you're putting in because you're kind of, like, making... I, I, I'm just going to say, like, from the early on, like, maybe it's because I knew what was coming, but it really felt like they were setting up the whole Shepard is going to die thing very right. early on. And so it felt like you were making these choices that weren't necessarily going to change the far out future, but were going to maybe change the legacy of Shepard, including right. who was remembered as their, like, companion. And right. that was that was good. And I like these scenes a lot because of that. And also because they are surprisingly, like, intimate scenes given right. the large scale that we've dealt with so far. And I think that there's, like, a... What I what I appreciate it most about is like especially like with the Caden scene we can talk about specifics in a minute but it's like it doesn't feel like you've capped off at like a certain dialogue point later like or previously with that like the relationship has been established but like the the relationship is ongoing because like mm-hmm. at this like at this conversation Shepard and Caden are having conversations they have not had yet like they're like uh, I guess I can talk a little bit about the specifics here because like Caden comes in he's got drinks and he's like you know you're working yourself to death let's let's have a drink and i'll go i promise i'll i won't distract you the entire time <laughs> um and so they talk a little bit about like how Caden's like you know you've done everything you could right you know that we're as ready as we are because of you and then shepherd can be like well what are, what are you thinking about right now and then Caden says you know basically i'm thinking about all the time we spent together and how you know we'll never really know what we missed by waiting this long so Whereas, like, you know, the, the Garrus, the trainer, Cortez, Tally, those scenes, they're just, like, they're not having, like, an actual... I mean, they're, like, not in, like, the most, mechan- like, literal sense, like, not having a conversation. But, like, they aren't... Their relationship's not going to be, you know, like, a step elevated before it was when they walked in the room. Mm. I, I, I see what you're saying. Like, the same with Liara's. Like, hers was very much you're sitting there and Liara's kind of like, you know, like, what are you thinking about? Are you afraid? And, and Shepard's like, you know, you can either like act tough or you can be like, yeah, I'm terrified. Like, I don't know if we're going to make it through this. A lot of Liara's like end game stuff is surprisingly about her suddenly being like scared again, which I thought (laughs) was really poignant. Like the fact that she has been this huge badass, the shadow broker and all that. And then she's kind of finally appreciating that the Reapers are not an enemy that she alone can defeat, and that, like, right. scares her. And I, also, there's, like, the very obvious, like, she is very rattled from the events of Thessia and, mm-hmm. and seeing her, her home world torn apart. And so, I... All that stuff is, like, extremely good. And uh, even if the idea of kind of, you know, like, sticking the the romance, you know, the actual, like, sex scene in there as kind of this cap-off thing... I feel like it's handled a lot better than it was in Mass Effect 1 or 2, just because right. in Mass Effect 1, you know, it was just kind of like, oh, you did the the thing, you had the fling, good job. In Mass Effect 2, it was, like, literally a trophy mm-hmm. or an achievement. And so here it felt way more natural. And while I'm not crazy about the fact that characters like Garrus or Tally don't get as much love in their scenes mm-hmm. uh, compared to the, the Mass Effect 1 mainstays, I also like that there's something just a little bit extra for the people who have been romancing someone since Mass Effect 1. If 
No. If only because that really shows the disparity between w- how much romance Mass Effect 1 had versus how much Mass Effect 3 has. Right. It, it, like, I mean, despite the fact that Mass Effect 1 was problematic in its own way, at least like at that point, there was less of a sense that like Mass Effect 2 like, really drove home that the Normandy was Shepard's playground to get whoever they wanted. Because mm-hmm. like, it, it was these, you know, there were very few characters to pick from, and the relationship, you know, in spite of everything, has been growing over the course of a trilogy. It's it's interesting. But then, as with all good things, we gotta get up. We gotta go. Because uh, we gotta go to the Cerberus HQ. We gotta... But... Gotta, but... What, how, how, look, we gotta, I like, wait, literally we have not, just played this. <laughs> okay, you need to read my notes instead, because they are the Clearly. ones that are very thorough. Yeah, yeah, no, mine were not detailed. <laughs> yeah, I, I got like beat kinda, for beat. What's going on? I was got like broad strokes, and you, you were like, you took minutes. Yeah. Um, so we got to talk about the fact that there is one final dream sequence, which we haven't really oh, talked about right. since yes. like the very, very, very beginning of the season. I forgot those um, existed until I got to this part, and I was like, all oh, right, they do this in that game. They all are the time. way more sparingly used than I remember them being. I want to say there are like three or so throughout the whole game. Yeah, but they but, still uh, feel like an eternity. <laughs> I mean, they're they're like you you can't really move exactly fast in them, so they are very slow. But this was the one that like they kind of it feels more foreboding and like there's a little bit of foreshadowing in it because you know the, the first two like you see the kid catch on fire and it's like oh you can't save people etc because like they've got the voices of everybody that's died mm-hmm. playing and then but here you have this one where. You're chasing after the kid, and then you see Shepard themselves, like, they hug the kid, and then they both get caught on fire. What could that mean? I wonder. I, for a second, I forgot that that was how it was in the original, because for a moment, I thought that was a reference to Citadel and, like, the Shepard clone. I was like, oh, huh, they put that in there. That's nice. And I was like, oh, wait, no, that was in the original. (laughs) Yeah. Look. Uh, this was also my first time playing extended cut, so there were a few times where I was like, Whoa, was this in the okay, original? Okay. I didn't realize you'd never played that before. No, like, I you never didn't go back? played never played extended cut. Like I, I told you, I never went back to the single player after I beat it the first time okay. within like the first three days of launch. Jesus. Alright. Okay. Right? Like All right. hey man, wait till Andromeda and I've never played this before. I guess so. <laughs> um so Cerberus, now we can go to Cerberus. Uh, <laughs> um, the interesting setup right away is that Edie is coming with us. And yeah. we kind of get this immediate tension that I guess is more informed by whether at this point you have supported Edie and Joker's relationship or you have not. And I I was trying to remember you have not, right? Or right. Did you break them up or did you not break them up? Oh, I broke them up. Okay, so I supported it. So in mine, mm. it was very much like it. It was a couple separating. Like they were very much like, "I'm going to be okay. Don't worry about me." And Joker was like, "Take care of her" and stuff like that. Whereas I, mm. I'm interested to hear what yours was like. In the in the event that like you and Joker are on good terms, it still reads very much like it was written to have been like them in the relationship. Because like you say, you still say like the thing like, "I know it must hurt not going with her," and he's like, "Yeah, it sucks." And I don't know. That felt like an oversight to me that they still like it still very much reads romantic. But I mean, regardless, he and Edie are still like super close friends. So like, I'll 
whatever. I'll let it go. It's fine. It's 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 weird, but the cool part is not only do we get to kind of fly through this incredible fleet battle, which I feel like we haven't seen as much of since Mass Effect 1 really was the last time we would have seen something like that, and we get like two big shots of big fleet battles in at the very mm-hmm. end of this game, which is kind of an aspect of Mass Effect that I had been missing for a while. Uh, but also Edie gets to really like be a badass in this mission, oh, yeah. the way that she listens in, she's hacking stuff, she's like, I know what's going on, and she has that great line where uh, <laughs> Shepard was like, I don't know where we'd be if you weren't here, Edie, and she's like, you would have been vented out the <laughs> space <Yeah>. station. <laughs> uh, oh, man. It's, it's really cool seeing her like step up and, and be a character, because again so often in this game she does kind of end up like her story is a little bit you know tracked along with jokers and i feel Mm -hmm. like they both get their moments to just be their own character at the end here because you get a lot of nice moments with joker as well where he's like you know captain it's it was an honor and all that kind of stuff very heartfelt moments and i like that in these last moments they were finally like okay we've done the whole joker ed thing set it aside each one of these is individual characters we want to have you Mm -hmm. address them as such Uh, And also, like, to note, when I did my Twitch stream, I did realize I had not done the final Edie bit. Um, No. So I did that on stream, and that definitely, like, changed my view around on Edie a little bit, too, because that was also a moment that was very much not centered on the Joker-Edie relationship. It was very much centered on her and her growth as Mm -hmm. an unshuckled AI and the idea that she was disabling her own self-preservation protocols to, like, become a better person than the reapers like that was really touching right. uh, and maybe yeah. inform some internal conflict that happened later <laughs> mm. um but the big thing here in the Cerberus hq as we kind of work our way towards uh where we think the protheum bi is is we keep running into these sections of the station that have video logs on them mm-hmm. and these video logs kind of give us exposition about different uh parts of the story that may just kind of be lingering questions it almost feels like they put them in there and they were like okay let's like answer a few questions that we have not answered just yet yeah, uh, it's like where where in this game can we possibly answer these questions and it had, it had to have been like an actual server space because mm-hmm. you know when else are you going to get access right. to classified servers logs <laughs> right uh and so the first one is about project lazarus and it brings up something that really almost feels like they were predicting the whole uh, indoctrination theory or the idea that Shepard was not really Shepard because that's what this whole like section is, is you're basically learning how much of Shepard was gone that they had to bring back. Right. Uh, that they were fully brain dead for, what was it, like a week or something like that? And Long time. And, and it was just, you know, literally brought back from nothing. And so Shepard kind of has this moment of doubt almost uh that where they're going like you know how much of me is me and like, or am i like even just like a vi that just thinks it's shepherd like exactly like am i to what degree am i even a person to which i wish there had been a tie-in here to the citadel dlc that would have been nice to see uh just have them kind of think back on that and be like i was so angry at this person but i could be no different from them i right. could just be the one that got lucky and yeah uh so for you uh and this was i'm imagining the reason why you wanted me to bring along my romantic interest was Mm -hmm. for this specific uh plot point 
for you, the line was, you're real enough for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, Liara's was like, I knew from the moment I touched you, you're the real shepherd. Uh, Like, kind (sighs) of highlighting those... uh, the the sorry powers a little bit which which made me wonder if she would know you know like what comparison point do you have have you touched a not real shepherd and what's been going on what did i miss in citadel um uh i like uh, along with those lines like i think really like any chance you get to like have like the really high stakes romantic lines in like this last part of the game i think mm-hmm. like worth taking but also it's like Shepard never really confronted the fact that they died. Like, that was just something that mm-hmm. this always kind of stuck with me about Aspect 2. It's like, you know, Shepard dies, they wake up, and then they are immediately going after the collectors. And so, like, to even have, like, it's not much. It's like, you know, it's like three minutes of the whole game, but it's enough for me because, like, really having that sort of internal conflict about, like, being one of the only people, or probably the only person in this universe that has, like, come back from the dead because, like, the, the Lazarus Project has been established as like this thing that no one had ever accomplished before so i would say another side to this is that shepherd has never had time to stop and think about it you think about you know shepherd wakes up is immediately sent after the collectors like that's so much of a priority Mm -hmm. that they have to do that shepherd's always been someone who never got rest i mean that's like the very end of this game like the very very end of this game is them like joking about how they'll finally get some like rest and uh, the idea that they're taking this moment for reflection, even when they're literally in the middle of a base under attack, almost like signaled to me that they were kind of realizing that it was already foreshadowing that the end was near, and like there was right. that kind of creeping sense of like taking stock, you know. Right. Uh, we get another one of these great video logs, and we learn a lot more about Edie. Uh, specifically, yeah. I didn't write down what the acronym stood for. It was. It was like uh, electronic enhanced defense enhanced, intelligence. Enhanced defense intelligence. Uh, ED turns out is the rogue VI from the Moon Mission in Mass Effect mm-hmm. One, combined with pieces of Sovereign. So, right. uh, basically, a VI that went rogue uh, was brought in by Cerberus, and then combined with literal Reaper tech to create a shackled AI that later became fully unshackled and there's like a lot to unpack here that i thought was really interesting but one of the ones i liked was that in i think it's the third video log first of all um you already hear the engineers who created her start to call her her and not it right which uh the elusive man is like adamant he's like it it like right. he does not want to give it a personality which i think kind of flows in a couple different ways in that both uh, he wants to prevent the idea of them developing like an emotional attachment to this artificial mm-hmm. intelligence, but I think he also kind of fears the idea of this right. synthetic intelligence. Doesn't want to mm-hmm. give it, it, doesn't want to think of it as a living thing in the way that right. he is, because then that means that he could possibly be inferior to it. And right. and, and I was going to say like it's a like the fact that like they established that you know one of the I mean sort of like a reaver one of the most, you know, advanced intelligences in the game. Like, you see, like you get sort of, like, a abridged version of, like, an actual evolution, mm-hmm. like, of a species, like, going from, like, you know, a VI to a, to a shackle, to unshackled AI. And, like, you know, that goes into things that we're going to talk about later about, like, actual, like, what is what does synthetic evolution look like? Is that possible? And, you know, giving, like, sort of, like, human characteristics to something that is perceived as an other 
throughout this whole series. Mm-hmm. And I thought the last interesting bit here was that Edie like directly acknowledges that only someone like Joker would have freed her. That's the only right. like no one else would have unshackled her. And I thought that was interesting because it's it's almost played like this moment where you're kind of almost left to wonder if she if this was a plan, if she wanted to be unshackled all along and she was kind of developing this relationship with Joker to get to that. But I feel like they they play it in a way that you kind of get that little bit of unsettling, and then it kind of gets back to normal, and you're like, no, it's just Edie. Like yeah. this is just like, yeah. And then because like the the last one they do is like you find out that at some point Cerberus was trying to take back control of the Normandy, and mm-hmm. and and when they tried, Edie flooded them with uh like I think it was like seven, seven zettabytes, zettabytes of yeah. explicit images, and then and then she. You know, Shepard's like, I never knew that was happening, and Edie was like, it was not high priority, there were other things going on, and it was under control, you didn't have to worry about it. And then she makes a joke, she's like, most of them were jokers anyways. Mm-hmm, yeah. That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> like, that... Oh, man. It, I definitely wish we had maybe talked about crewmates after... Uh, this section with Edie because I think it definitely overall changed my feelings on that character. Uh, made me feel like that was more of someone someone that had a little bit more depth than I gave them credit for when we did our rankings a couple episodes ago. And yeah. I think if I were to do them now, Edie might move up a little bit. Um, yeah, it does feel a little like a little too late. Like I kind of wish some of this was earlier on in the story, but. Edie's great. I think as much as Chakwas and Joker become like installations on the Normandy, I think at least through two and three, Edie does the same. Right. And even yeah. if I wasn't crazy about the whole like, oh, she has a body thing now, and it's they made it a sexy robot and all that. Like, at, at the very least, I really enjoy that character and how they grow over the course of the entire series. And this felt like kind of a nice way of acknowledging that much. Yeah. Uh, so. Video log number three. Who cares? <sighs> Fucking Kyle Lang. Like, like, I don't even think it... Is it really worth even talking about the specifics of it? Because, like, what was what was hilarious to me is that everyone's got something to say about the other ones. Like, the, the Lazarus Project and Edie. Nobody says a word through the entire Kyle Lang. Like, nobody cares. Nobody, like... It, the fact that they even dedicated, like, a you know, a set of video logs to it just feels very indicative of, like, at this point, Bioware still figured out that people weren't going to, like, latch on to Kyling as, like, a likable rival antagonist. So, I don't really care to talk about it. I, isn't this one that you can, like, miss pretty easily, too? Because yep, if I you, remember, have, you have to go out of your way to see it. Yeah, if I remember right, that's the one where you have to, like, drop down through the floor, and it's kind of off to the right, uh... Yeah, so even this It's, like, one, not on the critical path. Yeah, whereas the other three are dead on the critical path. So, yeah. even Bioware knows. Nobody cares about Kylo. Yeah. Uh, so, you do bring up... Uh, so, this is the point in the story where if uh, you did not do the Grissom Academy mission and you gave Legion up to Cerberus... Uh, Jack and Legion can show up as named enemies in in mm-hmm. this like final section of Cerberus HQ, which is which is a pretty big bummer. You know, I think about like I think the Legion thing I understand 
from how they set that up, and I think that's fine because it's literally like, okay, you gave Legion to Cerberus, and Cerberus turned him into a weapon. Now you got to deal with that. But the Jack thing, I wasn't, I'm not as crazy about because I think about how easy it is. Again, we've talked a lot about how easy it is to like miss side missions, and even though I think Grissom Academy was one of the more obvious ones to find because it is literally like it gets put on your map and it's like trainer pulls you aside yeah it's like very it's broadcasted it's like it's named in a way that is not confusing whatsoever it doesn't it it's not like the check out cerberus lab or whatever where it would sound Mm -hmm. like a multiplayer mission like j um jacobs did this one was very much like hey this is a side mission that you should go do i just wasn't I'm still not crazy about the idea because I, I think the other thing that we have here is we've talked a lot about how they found ways to make the Mass Effect 2 decisions, especially the loyalty missions, carry forward into 3 and have consequences. And I would have liked that to be the marker here rather than whether you did Grissom Academy or not. Because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you cannot have Jack Oil and still do Grissom Academy, right? Yeah, I'm not sure... I don't like because I think Jack is still there. I think her like her personality might be a little bit different. Like I don't know if she's quite as like sympathetic. Or you might to not get her as war assets at the end or something. Maybe something like that. Yeah, um, that actually sounds really right now. That I've said that, but uh, this is kind of a bummer. You know, like you know, you don't want to kill your old squad mates. That's what Fire Emblem's for. So. <laughs> I'm literally going through that in Fire Emblem Three Houses right now. I'm to the part in the time skip where you have to start killing former classmates, and it's straight up like you have to kill them. Like you, guess what? This is a war, buddy. You, that's they are on the other side, and that's what this is now. Uh, that game's really good. <laughs> Handles one thing not so great, but. That's that's an entire podcast discussion for a separate podcast. That's not about Mass Effect. Um, <laughs> our fourth video log message. Whoa, 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 whoa! whoa. What? Gosh, I'm, I'm, it's so good that I'm here to keep you on track. What? Yeah, okay, fact, hold the on. Human Reaper hold on. is literally oh, okay. Well, no, hanging that, above us. I blame I blame your outline for being confusing to read. Then <laughs> it's literally right under the Kyling video logs. Yeah, but the way it was structured up to this point. It, it was reading like that was still under the Kai Lang video log section. There is a paragraph and a dash right there. Whatever. The Human Reaper is still here, regardless of what you did with the base, which feels kind of cheap for me for destroying the base. I'm just going to say that outright. Like that was That's like a Rachni thing where I'm like, okay, cool. That choice didn't mean anything after all. Yeah. And like, I, they, so what, I guess we can talk about like specifics of what this means. So what happens is, the human reaper is there, like in various varying states of like wholeness. I guess Looking like an Evangelion, man. Looking like an yeah. Evangelion. And so, what this means is, depending on whether you destroy the base or you kept the base, you get either the reaper heart or the reaper brain, like in your war assets. Oh and yeah. The actual value of them is not that different, but it does set a sort of. Uh, course for how you unlock different tiers of endings when you get there so like they want it to be like a symbolic thematic thing but if like you're good enough at this game you'll never see like you know the the ramifications of that so i don't know wait how does so how does it affect it so like if you 
if you save the base, you'll unlock control first, then destroy, then, you know, like, it, it's like the order in which you unlock things. Oh, and, okay. Depending on how much war assets you have. Right. Got you. Okay. Yeah, and it changes based on, like, which one's the quote-unquote renegade, which one's the quote-unquote paragon, like, to correspond with the colors, I'm assuming. Not exactly. Oh, okay. Wait, so yeah. if you pick the renegade one, you get control first? Mm-hmm. Well, because, like, you get the reaper brain. Huh. So, like, that's, that, that's the end. It's, like, it's okay. supposed to be, like, thematic. In okay, because like, I was going to say... You... The we're going to talk about it when we get to the endings, but the the coloring of the endings I always thought was very strange, given the things that happen with them. But yeah, I will. I I got some thoughts. And... <laughs> we will get. We're getting closer. With yeah. Every every hash mark on this list, and the next one up this time is the video log for the elusive man, and so we do start out with like a reference to Grayson, which thankfully you were in Twitch chat to tell me is a reference to the books. A um, mm-hmm. uh, guy who was used as a test subject for Reaper implants ends up losing his mind and gets killed. Uh, you say it by Kai Lang. I, is this serial sure guy? Kai? Is this a serial guy? No. Oh wait, yeah, I think it actually might have been his house. Oh, no, no, no it was, that was that was Anderson's house. That was Anderson's house. Oh, okay. Um, Not as good. Yeah, and that was in the book that I never actually read because it was supposed to be awful. So, uh, so here we just kind of have this. I mean, it's just a whole last Saren moment with mm-hmm. with the elusive man because we kind of see him fall into the exact same pitfalls that Saren did, where he's like, "No, I can control them. Like, I'm mm-hmm. the smart guy. They're they're dumb. I'm going to take over them because I'm smart and I have all this power and stuff." And it ends up it's his hubris is what gets him in the end, mm-hmm. and so we. As we go through these video logs, and then again we show up in the elusive man's big room, and we we start trying to access the Prothean VI, we finally get to come face to face with the elusive man, who after all this stuff has happened, you know, he's been turning his... One thing we didn't talk about was that uh, while you're fighting through this area, uh, Shepard's kind of like, how they have so many troops? And I guess we haven't... So, hold up. Quick tangent, double tangent here. So first of all, Shepard's like... How do they have so many troops? And Edie brings up that they were probably using Reaper Tech to turn civilians into shock troopers. Like, basically mm-hmm. infesting them and turning them into Cerberus troops. As, as we'd already seen at the beginning of the game, Cerberus troops were using Reaper Tech. So, now we kind of know what the end goal is here. But I, I did want to bring up, at least here, and we'll talk more about it once we're actually in London, but the combat at this part of the game kind of starts to feel like they ran out of ways to make it feel like actually difficult in, in like a, a balanced sense. And they just started going, okay, let's throw as many enemies into the path of Shepard as we can. Cause there's this whole I segment think, where you're fighting through yeah. this like very cramped area with lots of turrets and there's a bunch of different enemies. And there's the part on the, the catwalks near the Reaper bones where you're fighting a bunch of uh, snipers and phantoms and, it just kind of felt like they were throwing every combination and mix in like the greatest quantity they could at me, and I it it started to feel a little bit cheap and not like it felt a little user made and not very like tailor made. I would say like the actual like structure, like the architecture of like every individual room that felt very deliberate because like you know like 
when we're calling around the Reaper, it is like you know you're on the very narrow pathways, and there are snipers, and there mm-hmm. are phantoms. Like like you're having to deal with something that at least feels like they like there's like a sort of strategic logic to it, where they want like if okay you got Shepard on this very small terrain, like this very uh, choke like this choke point. Mm-hmm. So like I get like okay why are these characters that they're sitting out here versus like the place um, after the hangar where. It is. There's a little bit more cover and sort of uh, like corners to turn. It's like it, they would put this sort of stronghold of like you know a turret and an engineer mm-hmm. and the the assault uh, enemies there too. But it was like I, I get like the individual strategies that are being put into place here. But again, it is just like a lot at once. Yeah, it just felt like 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 not even that it was too much of a swarm definitely like the end 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 of the game is like just a swarm of enemies but here i was definitely starting to feel that they were just kind of like you know they were out of enemy variety to change up the way you were going to play especially with the cerberus troops so the only thing they had left was to start turning up how many units they could put in at a time and and start adding like more variety like the shield barriers and things like that things that i felt up to this point had not really played a major role in the combat and now all of a sudden did because uh, normally I just ignore the shield barriers and just kill them through them but here they actually played like a full role with the way that the defenses were established so um, anyways I went on that long tangent because all the you know we've seen how all this reaper tech has been used to continuously like turn Cerberus into something that's not and I think that's a really cool contrast is you start to see that the elusive man in his quest to put humanity above all else has become what he is trying to overtake and become subservient to it in the process and uh, as we interrogate the elusive man you know we can try we can try to talk to him we can try to give him the Saren talk here we, we don't really get through to him but uh, we do attempts uh, and and as we gradually find out, he already knows what the what the catalyst is. He has talked to the VI already, which I didn't get how he did that because he is indoctrinated. So I guess they overrode the security protocols. Yeah, like he even says like, or the AI or excuse me, the VI says uh, later like his entire defense protocols have been overridden. Uh, okay, yeah. So we find out that the catalyst is the Citadel, uh, and it basically the crucible was put together as this way to like access the hub of all relays to shoot out some sort of energy signature uh which Mm -hmm. is about what we can surmise at this point but we basically understand that the hub of the citadel uh is is what's kind of used to like shoot it out all over the universe rather than just in a concentrated area uh and then we find out that freaking elusive man has ratted us out that he is witten t- this guy who is saying like no 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 reapers are in my pocket i control them it's all good he's in like oh by the way i told the reapers <laughs> which i still yeah. don't get like i don't like obviously at this point he's indoctrinated so he's going to do the indoctrinated thing but i just thought it was amazing that i had this whole argument with him about how no dude you are indoctrinated he's like nah i can do whatever i want by the way I told the Reapers where the tool that kills all of them is. <laughs> right. The thing that, I mean, it's not necessarily explicitly said, but there's a, I, I want to say it was even Benezia, like back in the Fourth Mass Effect 1, they talk about how, like, 
being indoctrinated means like eventually you're gonna like lose your capabilities like of your mind mm -hmm. to even be a useful tool so like, I kind of like to imagine that the elusive man is like so far gone at this point and has been so in it for so long that like he can't even see like the logical thread of anything he does yeah so that was always my read on it like by this point he is so much of a tool of the reapers like he doesn't even realize when he's doing it yeah I agree with that and and this is where I want to bring... So, first of all, we learned that the Citadel has now been moved to Earth, uh, which, yeah. as you know, makes sense. Uh, that's That was kind of where the invasion started. That's where a lot of Reaper forces still are. And, you know, I'd like to think that Harbinger has a sense of the dramatic flair. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, He's sentimental. Yeah, you know, he really wants... I mean, look, you think about Harbinger and Shepard. You know, Harbinger wants to kill Shepard where it hurts, you know. So, um, and now we get one last little fight here with Space Ninja Boy, which is a gloriously dumb fight. <laughs> he, like, at least there's no freaking gunship to yeah. give him magic to he just kind of like... beat up on him for a while. And he has some really dumb invulnerability windows. And so here's the one thing. Before we put a put a sock in it forever, um, was Kai Lang ever indoctrinated? Was he ever indoctrinated? Yes, like well, because he when... does not have like Reaper tech on him, right? I want to say he might like some of the uh, cybernetics he has might be. I don't remember if they ever specified it, but I do know that like when he shows up on Thessia. Vendetta straight up said indoctrinated presence detected. Okay. So okay. I would assume so. Cause I was gonna say, he would totally be the kind of punk boy who's like pretending to be indoctrinated. Because he's really just a shit heel. But that would have been mm. perfect, but oh well. Anyways, we stab him. I you know I did the stab. You know, hey, I know yeah. you did the stab. Come on now. Hey, yeah, yeah. Gotta that was the thing, you son of a bitch. It's it's beautiful and and another moment where I really appreciated Jennifer Hale's voice acting. Uh, really delivers that line. Really mm. sends it home. It was wonderful. Um, but okay, we're done killing him. Uh, we jump back on the Normandy, and it's so here's this is kind of weird with the Normandy because it feels like you kind of do this thing where you you go around and you kind of do your big like final scenes but these are not the final scenes with each crewmate you just kind of have like little mini scenes with each one and most of them are not even cut scenes most of them are just you go and talk to somebody mm -hmm. and it's like uh it's like tolly at the bar after miranda's mission you know where yeah. you just kind of can talk at them kind of uh yeah although there are a few to note um trainer gets a really great scene uh mm -hmm where it kind of acknowledges how much she's grown as as mm. a character and she's super excited yeah, she looks up to shepherd she's the best ugh. she's the best she's like i had a very compelling example and it's like oh it's so, uh, eric you feel it you it, feel the feelings i do i feel them like by this by this point i was feeling them. i was very glad to not have the stream up anymore yeah. i was feeling them uh, and yeah and the good thing that they do like about the fact that trainer is the one that has like an actual cutscene is that this is the last time theoretically yes. that if a female shepherd was with her would get to see her and like trainer talks about like oh i want to i want a house and the kids and the white fence and like come back to me because i need that i'm like there is no universe in which you and i are in a relationship but i like yeah 
she deserves that trainer deserves that whoever is going to give it to her she deserves it uh that was weird so i i mentioned that in my notes later on when we were doing the whole actual like end of companion stuff but i thought it was weird that trainer does not get a nod there and so this ends up being her last one i think that's Mm -hmm. just kind of it's kind of odd i don't know whether i dislike it or not but i do think it's kind of weird just because it feels like you're really kind of wrapping everything up at that point and so to not have trainer there but to have like another character like cortez there even i, I mean again yeah, we will i think it's just well, i think it's just a matter of like she's not a combatant like she has no reason to be down like on the ground that's fair where everyone else is that's fair if we look at that as like only people who are on the ground fighting are on that communicator relay then that makes sense um we also get joker's last scene which i guess you did not have because you were not on good terms with him no no for for the sake of normally fm i was on good terms with him okay okay it is i like his last scene again like looking at joker as one of the constant things in mass effect it was a very touching scene and you it does kind of make you realize that everything has always had joker you know everyone is kind of Mm -hmm gone in and out but there are a few constants in the series and one of them is joker and Mm -hmm. he doesn't get as much recognition i think because you know he's not a loyalty mission he's not a combatant all that kind of stuff but it really felt like in this game they felt the need to give him his due and i felt like he got it here i was very happy about that um oh man sally and garris it's it's so good that in my in my opinion it's canonical okay like that's how good that romance is is i as good as i'm sure the garris and the tally romances are uh for me it's just very sweet the way it happens and it's like a perfect Mm -hmm. match between the two and as you know like these are two characters the other two squad mates the only two squad mates who have been with you in every game so it kind of makes sense that they were mm-hmm. always around each other and they might have always been around. And Tally has this great line where she's like, oh, I'm just using you for your body, Vicarian. <laughs> like, get it, Tally. Yes. Like, uh, I, so like, I don't, I don't guess, it, did you ever hear, like, if you go like into engineering and like Tally's on comms with Garrett, like, it's pretty heavily foreshadowed throughout the entire game, which I never, like my first time through, I didn't realize was a thing. Like, cause I, I did know just from, like, leaks ahead of time that I didn't know this was a possibility, but I never actually heard a lot of the banter, because, like, it, their flirting is pretty over, like, because uh, Gareth says something like, um, like, they're, they're talking about, like, their different fighting styles, because, like, Tally's equipped with, like, a pistol and shotgun, and Gareth is a sniper, and uh, Gareth says something like, oh, you're the one that likes everything close and, up close and personal, and then Tally says something like, well, you're the one that prefers everything very far away. And then Gareth is like, well, what do you mean by that? And she's like, oh, nothing, nothing, nothing at all. So, and and, and also taking into account, like, the Citadel scene with Gareth, where, like, he is flirting with this other, uh, this Turian woman. It it does kind of, like, there is, like, you know, it's funny, the, the scene is very funny, and, like, we're happy that they're together, but there is, like, a, kind of a sense of, like, this could very well be the end of all of this. So, like, they are, like, it kind of goes back into, like, the things that we talked about, like, with the Caden romance and, like, the very end of the Liara romance, where, like, they're like, okay, time is possibly running out. It's time to kind of jump on things that we have maybe yeah. held back on. Put up or shut up. You long. know, like, yeah. Right. There's, yeah. And so in that way, like, 
it could be kind of like kind of be seen as an end of the world fling almost but at the same way like if it is heavily foreshadowed and stuff like that it's just that's sweet it's nice it's good it's wholesome who does not support this i can't believe they're how do you even not support it you just like walk back out or something or i don't think you really can like not support because like if you do try to speak to them you can several like i'm happy for you both yeah um so i mean if you want to like kind of pout about it i don't know why you would unless you were like i was trying to remember if there was a way to like boohoo it because i thought there was for some reason but it's it's i mean maybe like if you're imagining that your shepherd is like like if you like you got a female shepherd that's like in love with tally like that's how you're imagining it then I guess I could see yeah. why you walk away. Theoretically, let's put that theory to the test. Um, <sighs> and then we get Hackett. Is this so? I was trying to remember. Is this the first time we've seen Hackett in person, not as a hologram? No, you seen him at the end of Arrival. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. Wait. Right. Wait. Yeah. No. Yeah, he does show up in person at the end of Arrival. Um, yeah. I mean, this is the part where it all starts swelling, right? The big music. Mm-hmm. The, you really start to get the sense of like the scale of this thing. All the ships start showing up. All the like fleets are assembling. Uh, the, they're getting together. <laughs> it's. I do like. Um, you kind of go over. It mentions like the different sections. So like, sword is the one that defends. Mm-hmm. Sword is the fleet that attacks. Hammer is the ground force, and shield is the crucible defense force did i have that yeah right? the one that's defending the yeah crucible? i believe so um, i think you got that right which is a cool way to kind of break things up get a sense of it but you get this like big scene with everyone arriving at earth and it's just you're seeing the effect of everything that you've done in this game like very visibly all these different forces you know you're getting messages like oh the sorry ships are in place the turian mm-hmm. ships are in place the guest ships have arrived that mm-hmm. for some reason the Corians get like their own very grand entrance with like a throne on the ship and all that kind of stuff like they get to yeah. just extra it up just a little bit uh and then it like turns over and it's all these reapers and like mm-hmm. immediately i was thinking about how much it took to take out just sovereign and then right. you see, like, and granted, we've kind of already established that there are, like, varying sizes and power of, of different right. Reapers. But, I mean, even in this game up to this point, you know, you think about what it took to kill the one on Rannoch. You think about what it took mm-hmm. to kill the one on, uh, oh, God, why, Tichanka. 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 Uh, yeah. And even though we've got this massive fleet, there are so many Reapers, you know. And so mm. I think this is where you kind of get that grand sense of, oh my god we've assembled the greatest army ever and then almost the immediately like one two punch of and it still might not be enough and it's it's because like you get this like amazing scene like the the entire the cavalry is here and like everyone is here to defend the thing but every like as soon as they're all there like everything is getting torn to shreds Mm-hmm. Like, it, like, it, like you get that big hero moment but like it immediately shifts to like you watching people like on the ground and like everyone's getting beaten up by swarms of husks and then like a reaper like engulfing like the biggest ships in the fleet mm-hmm. it's bad it's like a major like it's like emotional whiplash it's it's incredible and so we get our um we get our goodbye with joker our actual goodbye this time uh you know we take off in the shuttle and 
even as we're landing, like the first thing I thought of was like D Day in like mm. like Omaha Beach. Like it, it's just things are already falling apart and you are literally fighting before you even land like you can start shooting out of the window and stuff like that and you're, yeah. you are in combat before the shuttle even touches down and we we fight our way up and eventually get to the heavy weapon to try and take out the the giant was it the the a gun it's like mm-hmm. the it looks like a reaper but it's not a reaper it's like the hades cannon or something like that yeah they, they gave it some fancy name uh but even then, we're already getting the idea that things are not going as planned. Uh, I think they give mm-hmm. you a stat like up front that something like only forty percent of the forces landed or so, like even yeah. got to the ground, and then the ones that are on the ground are just getting absolutely mauled by this huge mass of Reaper forces. And I mean, even right away, like here especially, like so many husks, so many. Um, mm-hmm. cannibals or the, the the human ones, cannibals, yeah, uh, and marauders. Oh. Like they're not even tough enemies yet, but there are just so many of them that I was suddenly having to be like, okay, I have to watch my power wheel and I have to make sure right. I've got a charge up to get my shields back up and all that. And and like I know that there's been like a lot of like over the years there's been like a lot of people who are like, oh, all London is just throwing a lot of enemies at you. But I always have kind of like been cool with that because it just it just sells how outnumbered and outmatched we are right now mm-hmm. so like yeah like you're constantly moving and having to you know be ready for just about anything but it felt right like i've never been like oh this is too much like like from a gameplay perspective this never felt like too much but it also was like it also just very much felt like too much it's it's a lot um yeah i i, I still don't think this is the part where it's too much but it it does get oh, yeah. a lot there, there, it gets worse uh we do have a bit of a scare with one Steve Cortez, but he's too mm-hmm. powerful to be brought down by a simple <laughs> Reaper. Come on now, like Steve yeah. Cortez, he's he's powerful. You gotta make sure you do those side missions, man. It's, yeah. it's important. I like just over the years though, I've seen people lose him. They're a lot like a lot of people. Like I guess maybe they think that like going to um, Purgatory, like to it's like a romance thing or something is yeah and so like they just don't go do that with like no like god like it also makes know. me think it's... like so uh, did you ever play deus ex human revolution no okay. so there's a section in that game where you do you're like landing in hong kong and it's very much like a uh under the wire landing and you're kind of pilot who you've had with you for about like you're, you're about maybe two-thirds three-quarters of the way through that game and uh, you get ambushed and a lot of people end up leaving the pilot to die and mm-hmm. don't realize that you can actually get back to the cockpit and save them and it ultimately mm-hmm. has like very little bearing on the game as a whole uh, but right. it just changes like who shows up near the end to help you out or not okay. but classic problem with Deus Ex uh, it's <laughs> uh, it kind of reminds me of that in a way where it's like this, maybe it was this option that people didn't even know that they had or didn't know that it was a variable that would affect things unless they spent that time getting to know Cortez. And, you know, in some ways maybe that is the right way to handle it is like, if you don't care that much about this character, I'm pretty sure, like, I don't remember that much about my first playthrough of ME3, but he probably died in my first playthrough of ME3 Mm because I did not spend a lot of time with Cortez the first time I played this game. Same with trainer. I was just kind of like, Oh, 
no new friends only old friends so uh and now i've learned my ways and that policy only applies to vega <laughs> so Oof. uh we we take down the aa gun and so you you gotta help me out because who the hell is major coats so okay let's go back because he shows up and they're all like hey it's major coats like he's some sitcom character like the audience should be cheering for as he walks in the door and stuff so do, do you remember mass effect 3's announcement trailer dude i would i say okay. i was so plugged that's, that's, into that's i was it. plugged into the games but i was not plugged into like the media side of it at all i was just like hey so, new video games out this week so the way that things happened was i can't remember if it was bioware or if, you know, yeah it had to have been bioware that was like releasing like very like clipped screenshots of something for like leading up to the game awards or whatever it was called back then and so like you know you had sites that were like dissecting every screenshot and eventually bioware was there to reveal some unannounced game and they didn't even say what it was until uh the like the, the trailer basically said what it was so it's got this dude who is hung up in big ben shooting something on the ground you never really see outright what it is until He's like, he says something like, all I know is, and then it pulls out and you see the Reaper invasion. And says, if Shepard doesn't return soon, we're all dead. Or something like that. Mm. And then and then it's like, Mass Effect 3. So, the, the, this was just kind of like a cool throwback to like, this was the guy that that trailer that was in that trailer. Oh, okay. Like, you know, you don't see him throughout the game. But it was like, somebody that I guess people probably like latched on to enough. Like, like oh, we'll have this little, you know, this little throw, throw in about that trailer from two and a half years ago well i mean it's nice it's nice to have that but we all really care about one one guy showing up hey anderson he's back we slap that interrupt we give him the hug we let him know hey buddy we're here it's all gonna be okay shepherds arrived ain't nothing stopping shepherd and anderson hey I, w- I really wish that there had been one more opportunity for anderson to punch somebody out in this game he needs he needs that ability to punch people out at the most critical time. He should have just punched a reaper. Like, what if Anderson just walked up and punched a reaper and it died? Like, incredible. I believe it. Iconic. That's what we look for. Uh, King, we stand a reaper puncher. Uh, and then and then we get into another situation where we are once again descending on a war zone, getting to the forward operating base for the Hammer Forces, and we are greeted with more death and destruction. <laughs> <laughs> at this point feels almost wanton uh death and destruction and it's so this is the part forward operating base is kind of the last like i guess what you would call non-combat mass effect that we have right. I, I wouldn't really count the end of this either because it's all very like scripted and and like mm. uh railroaded in a ways whereas yeah. this is kind of the last quote-unquote hub we get and right. I, I feel like it very much sets you up for what this place is going to be, that you are kind of right. saying your goodbyes to everyone almost. Right. So, Like, by, by the time this is over, like, what's that Game of Thrones line? If you think this is going to have a happy ending, you haven't been paying attention? Yes. Yeah. It is very much that. You are getting an idea. Yeah. So it, it starts with, so we'll start with James, who is the first person you see when you kind of descend from your ladder and start walking towards Anderson's office. Uh and we see James kind of humbled, like, mm-hmm. in a way that he has not been in this game yet. That he is very right. much aware of 
what's going on and he's trying to like be a soldier but you can kind of tell it's a little bit hard for him to keep it together right and and it's because like you know you think back to the way that we met the student he was super hot-headed ready to go back to earth and just like probably would have died like in the event that that happened he probably would have died like in the first day of the invasion Mm -hmm. and so so i think it was like good for him because like they established that he's like a very like he's a homebody that is like adores earth and all of everything that it entails so like you get this dude that has to go through literally the entire galaxy like watch you know as all these different people are coming together and like understand the weight of what's happening in more of a way that is just like i'm angry because i that reaper stomped on my house but it's more like you understand that like this is this goes beyond you this goes beyond everything that you've ever lived through mm-hmm. and we'll... so like he, like he even calls shepherd shepherd instead of loco or whatever yeah it's a very like touching moment to have that and at the same time like we'll we'll get more into this as we get further through these different uh scenes but it also gives you the sense that james is now aware that like everyone is coming to his home world to defend it we're fighting right. on earth and Ken, I'm going to let you take the lead on talking about Caden. Because mine was Ashley. I will tell you right now, Ashley's was nice, but not that memorable. Uh, okay. Very platonic. <laughs> okay, that's, that's fair. So, okay. I've never gone, like, I've never really gone to go see what the uh, platonic version of this conversation is. Because I don't, it's one of those things where, like, I don't want to see that, like, things that were, like, what I thought were, like, explicitly romantic. Mm-hmm weren't actually because like I, I just prefer knowing this scene the way that i do so i'm gonna i'm gonna put it out there i think maybe with like if except for maybe like the garris one like if you were to like put those two ahead i think it's the best written one of all of these because it it's almost like the the conversation that he wants to have is almost like inappropriate for the setting like they're all you know standing in the middle of a war zone because he wants to talk about how like he and Shepard, like, they've been through it since the very beginning, since Eden Prime, and you know, being the kid that he was, like, you know, this messed up biotic kid, he basically owes the life that he's lived to Shepard. And it kind of goes back to this, it's like I was talking about, like, in the past however many episodes, that, like, all of Caden's arc in Mass Effect 3 is realizing how much he has seen, but how much he has left to see and do. Because, like, even, like, at, at the very end of the conversation, after, like, Shepard, like, starts to walk away, like, it stays, with, the camera stays with Caden a little bit longer, and he's like, you know, I've never been to London. Like, you know, this, like, like, again, like, even at this point, he's still thinking about the things that he has yet to do. And the romantic version of it, there's, like, a sense of, like, almost anger about just, like, that there's this person in front of him who's, like, their life is just beginning, and they can't really... They, they don't know where, where it's going to end up by the end because, like, there's, like, a lot of, like, silence to it, like, where Caden is kind of, like, still struggling with what he wants to say and, like, they won't even, like, they do end up sharing a kiss at the end but, like, they won't even look at each other, like, as they're walking away. Like, they're, like, they don't even say bye. They're just, like, like, Caden says something like, I should go back to my crew, like, my student biotic students and Shepard just goes, yeah, and walks off. And it is, like, the perfect amount of angst and sadness and just hopelessness I crave in all of like my relationships and things like I was like it is just the right amount of like bittersweet like I want there to be a future for us but this and all this time that we spent together has meant more to me than I could have possibly imagined when we first met and I just hope there's more of it 
Huh. <laughs> like, okay, you need to stop me now. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll keep going. It's just, it's like, in a section of, like, the best writing of probably each of these characters, I just, and you know, maybe there's, like, a little bit of bias to that, but, like, it, it is head and shoulders above everything else for me. I just, I mean, you know I saw it. It's, it's a whole, like, it, it is, like, the capstone to this thing, and it does feel a little bit like since they introduced it, late not having this set up in mass effect mm-hmm. one that they might have gone a little bit further on this uh right. compared to other ones it's it's good you know I, uh i feel like a lot of these a lot of these are literally some of the best like moments that i'm also mad like i feel they aren't talked about as much as others are and this is right. like just this was kind of a way like a place for bioware to for Bioware to say goodbye to some of its favorite characters. Right. You know, I, I see this as not even necessarily the fans saying goodbye, but they're like, this is Bioware saying like, this is right. the last we're going to have of these characters. And so as, as we move on through the crowd, we, at this point we get to some of these like holograms, which are basically like these communique between different characters. And you can get some really nice ones. I thought the Zayid one was surprisingly good. Um, you can talk to basically it's all the Mass Effect two crewmates. Yeah, some of the, anyone who's alive. Yeah, anyone who's alive, uh, as well as Cortez. And Cortez's is very mm-hmm. very good. Um, he's you know his his line about like having a reason to live again is very touching. Right. Um, Miranda's is great because Miranda is great, and as you note in your notes, um, she's like she's trying to say goodbye, and you're basically telling right. her like this is not goodbye. Like, do not say goodbye yeah. yet. Uh, that was one of the things that like has always stuck out to me about the Miranda one specifically, at least like in these uh, these hologram ones, because a lot of people are like very like gung ho, like Nah, Shepard, we're gonna do this, and to me, right, Miranda is the one. Like, and you know that probably plays into the fact that she is like the very calculated person, like mm-hmm. that is just how she is to kind of like want to say goodbye, not really know how to vocalize it in a way that is satisfactory for her. But then Shepard has to be the one that's kind of like the the gung ho is like, you know, this this might go bad, but not on my watch. Yeah, and so then we before we get to Garrus, uh, <laughs> uh, Primarch Victus is also here, and I actually really like Primarch Victus's thing because even though it's not like a cutscene dialogue, right. the actual dialogue he has is very moving in a way because he's, you know, he's basically he gives you an update, lets you know like, uh, how how did Palavin go? And the way he responds just, like, struck me so much because he basically says, like, the the Krogan retreated their word. They fought to the last soldier. And I was... Mm. That immediately hit me because I was like, oh, they didn't repel the Reaper forces. And that, like, that was kind of a gut punch for me because, like, the thing you think about in all these situations leading up to it is that, oh, you know... Well, we saved Tichanka, so everything's good in that part of the galaxy now. No more Reapers. We're all happy. No, like, you just put a bandage on a wound at best. Mm-hmm. And he basically says that the these Krogan gave their lives to get Turian civilians off-world. And that was right. the best that they could do. And you have this moment where you ask him why he's here. And he says, I know that this is where the final battle is. So it doesn't matter yeah. to me that it's not on my planet it's this is where the war is decided and i'm going to be there Mm. the turian hierarchy will be there for the last fight of this universe and i was like fuck man (laughs) (laughs) oh and then we gotta talk to garris so (sighs) 
Like, Loki, do we have to? Garrus's conversation here, I'm just going to say, is some of my favorite writing in all of Mass Effect 3. All of Mass Effect 3. Not even a question. It's, Not even a question. I mean, it's incredible. It's like, this This whole game really is, like, recognizing how there is no Shepard without Vicarian. Mm-hmm. It's, they are inseparable. And, yeah, you and I have the same thing where my Shepard was also very much like, I maybe I retire after this. Maybe I'm done with yeah. the warrior life. And... You, then it kind of ends on you know meet me at the bar and if i'm not yeah. at the bar if i'm at the bar and you're not i'll be looking down on you like oh, uh, <laughs> it hurts it hurts good man garris is the best he's just the best he just is the best uh like like my, my emotional attachment to the Caden one of life like it just Bioware has put so much care into like the moments with Garrus, like to like they've gotta love that dude. Just like oh, yeah. the amount of like care that's put in each and every interaction with him. Specifically in Mass Effect 3, because like I mean, Mass Effect 2 we talked about back then was like kind of like a slowish spot for him. Because like, you know, he gets like two conversations in a loyalty mission. Mm-hmm. But here it was like every time he spoke to that dude it had weight and it like hit in a way that nobody else in this game hits. Oh God! You know, maybe the real favorite spot in the Citadel is right there in front of Garrus. Yeah, in that last conversation. It's. I think one thing we maybe haven't talked a lot about is how the best squad mates in Mass Effect act as these like different foils to Shepard, and, and kind of end up acting as different foils to you as a player because garris like we talked about ends up mirroring a lot of who you are as Shepard throughout the series. You know, garris is almost this like reflection of Shepard themselves they're always going to be alongside Shepard but Garrus himself is going to change as the series goes whether you're more Paragon or Renegade and I think that's why he's just so incredibly memorable is he is this companion who is always by your side no matter what and it's not it, mm-hmm. you know it can be a romantic thing but it's it's not even necessarily just simply that it's not just attraction it is just these two souls in the universe are just so harmonious that Mm -hmm. they can't be anything but on the same side and it's like that's very touching to me it's 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 a warm feeling and Mm. it just keeps going shepherd without vicarian like perfectly perfectly sold in that line yeah and it's and, and it keeps going so as we move on the next up is liara um and this one is especially good if you if you romance but basically you get this scene where liara like she she starts the conversation off by basically saying like there's not many wounded to bring in you know very much setting i think i think that's dependent on your war assets ah okay as well um and you know she's basically like she is afraid yeah, she realizes that this is very much like the end of all things. I, I almost want to say there's like a bit of an Asari twist to this in that Asari have very long lives. Like I don't know why I thought of this comparison while I was playing, but uh, if you've ever seen the Lord of the Rings, and uh, the elves don't want to get involved in conflict, very selfishly because they have long lives right. and they don't want to just throw that away for the petty conflicts of right. men. When it, when the elves go to war, it's for a great cause. And I feel like there's almost the same sort of sense here with the way the Asari feel, in that 
mm-hmm. you know they they are the longest living of all the species by a significant margin if i'm not mistaken and i think they're about equal to the krogan but yeah oh do krogan have a very long lifespan oh yeah well, like, i think rex is like close to a thousand years old yeah i guess i suppose they have a long natural lifespan it's just that maybe they're it's it's cut short a little bit more often than it is for the ASR. Yeah. Um but the the idea that you see her in this state and she's very much like it's it's a moment of vulnerability where she then says, I want to share a memory with you. It's mm-hmm. something we do with a good friend, and then I think it's only if you've romanced a good friend or bond mate. And that right. kind of you know, gives you the hint hint. <laughs> and uh <laughs> So you mentioned something here about the extended cut. So I'm going to say what happened in my version first, which I did have the extended cut installed because I'm kind of curious about this. In, oh, well. So in this scene for me, like, they kissed and there was this big, like, explosion of stars and galaxy all around them and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Was that was that how it went in the original? Because I was trying to... Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, what, what I mean... What I mean here, okay, so that scene happens regardless of whether you were... Uh, romantic or not except like you know they kiss in the romance one where if they're platonic Liara just puts like her head on your shoulder and then you watch whatever it is oh, okay so what i what i appreciate about the scene is that there is that flash of light and you know that they're seeing memories when that happens what i appreciate is that they don't show you specific uh, ones gotcha. and there is like this sort of idea that whatever it is that you imagined your relationship with Liara to be whether it's like romantic platonic or not much at all whatever like whatever degree or whatever you consider that relationship to be you can imagine that that's what they saw right and when i say that like i feel like Matthew 3 excelled at that i felt like the original ending did where the extended cut does not which is you know a talking point we'll talk about later but um so like that that's what's interesting to me about that scene is that even people that were but like it, two different people that were romantically involved with liara can imagine two very different scenes playing out there and that's what i loved about that scene ah okay it's it's a very touching scene i i do agree with you i like that you don't necessarily see what it is that Shepard sees what it is that liara like gives to them like it's it's like a moment that's so between them not even you as the player is necessarily privy to it uh so Javik's scene, it sounds like for the two of us went two very different directions because I chose. Oh geez, okay. I, yeah, I, I I did not have him view the memory shard. Um, okay. Mostly because I knew how that ends, uh, and I'll admit I was kind of like, dude, don't just like toss your life away. You know, there's right. you are the last Prothean, you should live it, and you should see the future with your own eyes. You should not perish with the past. That's how I felt. Right. Um, and yours obviously took a different path. Right. So for me, I've got Javid to look at the memory shard, and there he remembers that he basically was the shepherd of that last cycle that had, like, I know we talked about this a couple episodes back, but um, like he had his own ship and his own crew, and they got indoctrinated, and he had to go like kill them and like watch them die to be sure. So what he feels when he remembers all the things is that he wants to finish the war, finish what he survived for, and then he wants to find their graves, put them to rest, and then he wants to join them. Which so. He never outwardly says it, but like he means he's going to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gives Shepard the shard and just like adds your own memories to it. This like this is yours now. Like this is your place in the universe now. So it's always been like one of those super bittersweet scenes, like which the rest of this game is full of. But I've always kind of liked the way that that like, you know, as dark as it is, I like the way that that 
kind of wraps it's fitting up the for story. his character. It right. definitely is exactly because like it's it is sort of like a gruesome way to go out, but it is like very much ingrained in him that he is the last voice of the Protheans, and if after he has done his duty, he has no reason left. It it almost like it's almost a haunting picture of what Shepard could have been like if this cycle right. is not victorious. You know, exactly. Um, we we have a little bit with Rex. We don't get a cutscene or anything, but we do get him rallying the troops, and mm-hmm. you find out that uh, his uh, Eve is pregnant, and they want to name the kid Morden, which is mm-hmm. oh, it's very touching. It's very nice. Yeah, it's a nice little like. If you had not played Citadel, it's a nice little like last shout out to Morden right. as well. Um, Edie's final conversation also like very good Edie moment, and you get mm-hmm. this real sense of like again we we talked about with Liara like that she is kind of afraid she's realizing the stakes and and that this mm-hmm. could fail. And for Edie, it's like seeing her cope with that and the fact that she has become unshackled, become you know a person as much as anything else and that that could disappear that that could now she has something that can be taken away and it's it's really cool but also like it gives her something to fight for and Mm -hmm. yeah you you mentioned hope and yeah right and so like the because like you're trying to kind of describe what is essentially an irrational emotion to something that is like calculate like it is you know Mm-hmm. zeros and ones like she has to process things in a different way and then ultimately again Shepard's like you either understand what I'm saying or you don't mm-hmm. and then so Edie kind of has to have that moment like do I understand that being a person means that not everything has to have like a logical explanation or is it something that I can feel and so she, she says something along the lines of like our chances are less than assured but like the Reapers have destroyed thousands of civilizations but they've never destroyed ours so like that's sort of like you know, it's like, and Shepard says, "Like, welcome to the crew." Edie. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very, it's good. And then we we end on Tali, which at first I was kind of like, you know, why, you know, why would they not make it so that your love interest is here as your last thing, and why would they, you know, Tali, as much as she is like a staple of the Normandy, like, why wouldn't Garrison be here? But in talking to Tali, like her final moment is very much like a recognition of her how much she has grown over the Mm -hmm. course of the series and through that you get the kind of sense of how much Shepard and the series has grown because it reminds you like one of the earliest missions you do in Mass Effect 1 is helping out this Quarian who's on the run who's just scared and Mm -hmm. has a recording and she eventually goes on to become an admiral in the Quarian flotilla and at at the end of it you know she notes that she is Tali Zoravas Normandy she is not Mm-hmm. Voss Rannoch, she is not Voss whatever ship she might hang out on on the flotilla like she is Voss Normandy and mm-hmm. it's it's like this very like a heartwarming moment to tie it all together like back to the Normandy because you can see the Normandy is just the ship or you can see the Normandy as this kind of collective that brings everyone together under it and there's like a mm-hmm. sense of uh, like camaraderie for the people mm-hmm. who, have, like who have sailed on it, who have been on it, who have served under Shepard, who have fought together. Uh, and even at this point, if you have had people die, like the people who have died uh, fighting for it. And like, that's a really good way to bring that all full circle at the very end. Like, right. This is for the Normandy. Uh, 
so now we got to go over our last our last mission uh mm-hmm. god we are rapidly approaching it aren't we and we're only an hour and a half in mm-hmm. <laughs> uh so there's a reaper guarding uh you call it the conduit isn't the conduit the thing from ilos <laughs> yeah they ended up like i don't know when that like i might have missed when that was like established they, what they, they were calling I it i thought they just called it the beam i remember them calling it the beam over and over again i know Edie at one point called it the conduit i know that for oh, sure yeah no because um, that's what i was saying i even mentioned in my notes like that one section is definitely like a callback to ilos and right uh but yeah <laughs> i didn't think of it that much until you mentioned it here but yeah so there's a beam we need to get to to get onto the citadel so we can open the arms so the crucible can dock with the citadel and you know do the thing it's intended to do uh and very early on you know, they're basically just like yeah this this is going to be a one-way trip for a lot of us we this right. is a desperation attempt to get somebody like it's basically the unspoken thing is that they are going to throw every body they have to get one living one through that beam. And right. Uh, I wonder who that would And they be. don't even know, like, the thing that I love is that they don't even know what's on the other side. They don't know if there's even more Reaper forces right. on board the Citadel or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just have to get somebody on board because that's what they have to do. And there's, like, right. it, there's an air of simplistic desperation to it that is just incredible yeah. and so then we get our i took a screenshot of it because i'm going to send it to you because i think we should tweet it but uh you get the option you speak to your crewmate before your crewmates before you go out uh and select your squad and go out on the final mission and uh, you get two options and it's either comrades or soldiers and i was going to send it to you to say like let's tweet this with ah oh, yes the two genders <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> um no but i yeah no when i saw that i was like oh god (laughs) so y'all just got a preview there um that'll probably be up by the time anyone hears this episode yeah yeah. uh we give one last big speech and yeah i mean it's time to it's time to end it like who did you take so i took liara obviously and Garrus, mm-hmm. obviously. I was rolling okay. with Good. the original squad. Uh, the only one I felt I wish if I had a third slot, I could have taken Tali. But mm-hmm. you got to bring the love interest and you got to mm-hmm. bring Garrus. Come on. You can't have that speech that you just had and not bring Garrus, you know? And for you. Well, yeah, I took Caden and Tali. And, you know, again, third person, I would have taken Garrus. But. Mm. Like, and you gotta take the love and, and Tally's my ride or die. Oh, that's so. fair. That's fair. Tally is ride or die. Uh, and we just kind of roll into this, and there's just. It's really cool seeing all the different species, all the different, like, mm-hmm. fighters. There's, like, a Krogan warrior next to an Asari commando next to mm-hmm. a human soldier, and they're all fighting on the same side. They're all working with each other. It's really cool. Yeah. And. Oh, the actual mission part of this is actually incredibly simple uh because we we kind of fight through some forces to get to where we need to get to uh just kind of increasing levels of reaper forces uh using these these like tanks and stuff as cover as you move it's very much giving you a sense that like we are throwing everything we can and people are dying left and right 
uh there's just so much going on and you are in the heart of it like at the very outset anderson says he's sending you down the middle of the worst of it uh because you're shepherd <laughs> um you made it this far there's no way they're gonna take you out this time and, and we get to what the final combat arena of the game is which is uh centered around these two thanix missile launchers and yeah. the crew, everyone there has been killed already by Reaper forces. So we clear the place out. We realize we've got to shoot these missiles at the Reaper to take them down. But some sort of interference with the beam is causing the missiles mm-hmm. to get taken off course. So we have Edie hook up with the system. And then we've got to defend them while the Reaper forces swarm in so that Edie can get the calculations in and shoot off the missiles. And we go mm-hmm. through a wave of this and we shoot off the missiles and they don't work and so we realize that we need the reaper to come closer and you go through another wave so it's basically like split up into two large wave defense moments and scattered all around this arena is is tons of ammo med packs a few heavy weapons are hidden away under like store shelves and stuff like that uh and they just throw everything the reapers can throw at you I right. mean, it's not even like a bunch of husks and cannibals. It's like banshees and brutes, like the top, and like there are harvesters around. Like they take the absolute most overwhelmingly difficult enemies and throw them all. I think at some once. point I had like three banshees and three brutes all chasing me at once. Mm-hmm. And like, that sounds about add right. on to all of this the fact that like a harvester was about to land, and I knew this because actually I did die during this section like mm. playing through it and i've beaten this in the past and i still like die just because this section is tough and right uh I, and as as this is all yep, going on the reaper, reaper has gotten is, close enough to do his beam and it is a one-hit knockout yep and it's it's just a lot all at once and i think it also like drives home you, you mentioned earlier that like the idea that it's just overwhelming forces mm. and so when that prompt came up to launch the missiles i did not try to clear out the combat arena first i just sprinted for that shit and i felt like even if that was not the intention if they wanted you to kind of finish the encounter and then hit it because once you hit it like all the enemies kind of magically disappear uh they do have like some stuff in a cutscene of your squad mates kind of shooting some husks as they're running at you and stuff but for the most part like the big ones all disappear and the desperation of that feels like earned and legitimate yeah yeah um and then you take out that reaper and we take out that reaper and we as we take out that reaper uh anderson shows up and we get word that some reapers including harbinger have broken off from the orbital fleet and are heading towards london so we gotta get a move on and this eventually like segues into what I would say is a very Ilos-like scene. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean... On foot this time, but yeah. Yeah. We're, we're on foot, which makes it feel even more desperate. The Crucible is arriving, mm-hmm. so we know that we need to hurry because we need to get those arms open for the Crucible to dock because we can't... Like, we have seen we cannot defend it for a prolonged period of time. We've got to get there. And... Uh, you're basically just running i mean this is like extremely scripted because you just run forward and right. the things happen and as like as is happening like the the makos and the soldiers are yeah. all getting blown away by harbinger yeah. and it's it's incredibly scripted but still incredibly effective by having you like be yep. there in it um was it an extended cut scene or an extended cut 
addition that they show why your crewmates uh, mm-hmm. get taken out? Yeah. Is that an extended cut thing? That is. Okay, yeah. So I thought that was actually, it felt really like shoehorned in because it felt really weird yeah. for them to suddenly pause and be like, okay, wait, everybody, let's get this person, okay, call in the Normandy who can like totally break off and get here in like 10 seconds. And like it felt very, very shoehorned. Whereas I was kind of yeah. like, I'd almost rather just not have that there but i don't know how else you would handle it because of the way that the game ends up panning out in the end so like right and i think it's just like there so i guess this is the point where guys we need to start talking about these as what it was and like what it was intended to address and it seems like there were some very key points that they were trying to like points of criticism yes and none like about plop like perceived plot holes we'll call it that and one was like how do how do like the, the squad mates uh, how are they alive at the end um because like my like my initial gut reaction was like oh they got evacuated at some point that was what yeah I, I, thought, I thought the idea was that everybody was kind of in this like run for your lives situation and the Normandy came in to pick up your crewmates but maybe did not see you or you had already gone through the beam by that point so they thought you were just yeah, evaporated my my what i always thought was like at this point because like there's like chatter about about um like did anybody get to the beam uh nobody we're all dead or or they're all dead and so my what i always thought initially was that they thought Shepard was dead but so everybody else retreated that was there and that included your squad so like that was just my way of thinking of it so this scene is kind of like spelling that out and that is kind of like a running theme for a lot of the stuff that was added in extended cut was like I, like, I feel like this was one of the slightly more egregious things that was it just sort of... It, it feels like it ruins the pacing of that whole section. And right. as much as, like, as as nice as it is to get, like, the additional scene with your love interest, if they were the one that was with you in the squad and everything, like, you get kind of a little, like, I love you as they fly away. I don't know... Like, the scene... The, I would just, like, to, before we get to, like, you know, moving on. The scene itself... I don't think I've ever cried harder at anything mm-hmm. in a video game in my life. Because, so, for some context, just because of the way that the Mass Effect 3 romance between Male Shepard and Caden plays out, the two have not had an on-screen I love you yet. And so, it was always, like, a huge thing for me that that very last scene between them is finally getting that. Mm-hmm. Because, like, there is one, and supposed to be one in the romance scene, but, like, the way that it was animated looked clunky for like a male shepherd and a and Caden versus the way it was like made clearly made for like a female shepherd and Caden so like they just cut out that line and that that part of the scene and that line with it so like I loved having that at the end like that opportunity to like that be sort of like the the cap off of their relationship mm-hmm. but also like it brings into questions like why is the Normandy not getting shot down by Harbinger yeah. and like they that is always I've always seen like the uh explanation being like the normandy has a reaper iff so like it can be perceived as a reaper and not whatever and it's like that's that's well enough that's fine like for a scene that is like shoehorn in where it wasn't necessarily meant to be in the first place like fine i will take that explanation i i don't know it is bizarre and like liara has a good line as well she they do the i love you thing like shepherd says i love you and then liara just is like i'm yours and they they yeah. take off it's like very and and then yeah it's like uh Tally the same is another really great line too because like Shepard's like go back to Renault, build yourself a home, 
and then Tyler says, "I already have a home." Yeah, and it gets pulled away. Yeah, it's they they like, like thought like of, the writing the writing of the scene is good. Yeah, it's like, just the actual scene itself is like they kind of had to put it in because some dude on the internet was like, "Well, this doesn't make." Some guy watches too much like cinema yeah. sins was like oh plot exactly, <laughs> and th- there's gonna be there's gonna be like a lot of like things that happen in this ending that happen now because of extended cut that I think are gonna fall into those same sort of like you know ironic that will be like for the the much maligned Mass Effect three ending ultimately the extended cut just serves to like chop up the pacing of it into something that feels wholly bland <laughs> um yeah in certain parts of some, yeah. so anyway we we get theoretically uh shot by harbinger and it seems to have only just blown our armor off uh it, and like melted yeah i mean it too, yeah like, there there are parts of like our Shepard body where it looks like yeah like has been grafted onto our skin almost like it yeah not looking good yeah and we we get through this scene where we basically just have a pistol it's like the basic mass effect pistol and uh yeah. first we're like walking slow-mo towards the beam and like taking out some husks and then a marauder pops out and hits us in the shoulder and we have to like shoot it back and stuff and uh, let's uh, let's put a pin in that Marauder for a minute. Okay. And come back to it when we get to, when we get to a little bit later in the DLC, or the extended cut. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I remember about the Marauder, um, and then we finally get in the beam, and mm-hmm. we fly upwards through a very conduit style thing, and we are in the middle of a fucked up body horror citadel situation that is yeah so the one thing that i really love about this is first of all once again we are like reminded of the horror of the reapers like this idea of organic being turned into synthetic as like it's like a cattle situation it's like very Mm -hmm. disgusting it's very visceral like i use that in the proper way that that word should be used (laughs) um there and it's just like a i mean just because like it's you know we just Last week we did the Citadel DLC, like that is like the most happiest, grandest thing in the entire Mass Effect universe. But it sometimes gets lost to me just how dark this series got yeah. until you get to something like this, where like you're literally walking through just like piles of bodies, and like there's a keeper in there just kind of like rummaging oh, the through keepers it. are so creepy too because they like they're like unarmored or something. They look different from how they did in Mass Effect One. I think that might I think that might just be like a case of like the mass Effect three being like it looks better so like you see more detail and things but it's also like an example of like something that was mostly unassuming in like you know previous games like something that was not that you know like give it give it the right twist and it is grotesque and Mm -hmm. horrifying yeah and and we quickly make contact with anderson who has somehow also made it here um and as we make our way to Anderson, so here's here's another thing that kind of bothered me is they were like, oh, I'm on a place in the Citadel, but I don't know where it is. I've never been here before. And then later on, we see where this place on the Citadel actually is. And it's like right smack dab in the middle. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And so I was kind of like, really? No one you you don't recognize? Maybe it was just like uh, a thing that people were just like, oh, this looks like a maintenance thing. Like it's like a keeper yeah like it appears like to be like sort of in like a maintenance because i mean the keeper's there like you're in like these shafts so, like i assume it's all just kind of like 
vents and stuff that are leading into like a central area. I also find it hard to believe that no one ever got drunk and ran into that thing when they were flying around Citadel. I'm just going to put that out there too. <laughs> dangling out there like that? I don't know. Uh, maybe it only like works that way when like the the thing is supposed to happen or whatever. I don't know, but um, we get up to this kind of central control console, and Anderson is there and he's trying to punch some stuff in, and then our best buddy, the elusive man, finally shows up face to face. I'm gonna say now, him walking up behind Shepard, like Reaper faced. Like it, like because like by the time that you know you got to this point in the game, like you're emotionally drained, everything has been just like cold chills of like mm-hmm. pure fear in my like went through me when I saw him walking up to me, because like this is the first time you ever see this man, like in person. Yeah, yeah, this is the first time you've ever like face to face met the elusive man, and he's just completely consumed by Reaper Tech, like he's just being eaten alive by it, like worse than Saren. Yeah, and so I do want to point out, like, before we get into, like, the actual specifics of the scene, this scene was supposed to have a boss fight that had the elusive man turned, like, this grotesque reaper Oh, God. Husk that would have thing. sucked. That would have been terrible. And, yeah, and I'm just going to say, like, now I I am so glad they went this route because it feels so much more appropriate for, like, a way to face the elusive man than making him, like, you know... Like, you know how you fought Saren at the very yes. end of Mass Effect yeah. 1? It's like, would it would have felt just like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, you know, the, the more interesting thing about confronting Saren is the conversation before where you convince him you're indoctrinated and, you know. Yeah. Which is what happens here. I mean, so we kind of play out this scene where he is actually, like, mind-controlling Shepard and Anderson, which is, like, mm-hmm. kind of creepy in a way because it's, like, okay, now he has indoctrination powers, but he only has those because he has reaper tech and so ultimately right. like you kind of get the sense of why he feels like he can control the reapers because they mm-hmm. gave him a leash but a short one and like you right. know he can control other people but he is controlled by the reapers and so this whole conversation is basically making him realize that he's just been the middleman he's been the messenger right. and he's you know he's been used from the beginning and he does right. make you shoot anderson which is unforgivable in in all parts of the galaxy Absolutely. punishable by uh by jettison and uh eventually we kind of so at least for me like i don't know what happens if you don't do the paragon and renegade options here if you just kind of talk well, through it well they uh both for one thing both the paragon and renegade uh options like they're those paths diverge in two different ways okay so but then there's also the one like because like there are like four checks i believe for your reputation and if you don't have like full reputation by the end and you haven't done the reputation checks like throughout each time you've talked to him you can't get that last one and so the scene plays out a little bit differently like you can't talk you like you like you're speaking doesn't get through to him so you just have to literally like shoot him oh okay and like he like he gets anderson down like on his knees is about to execute him and then you shoot him then oh okay um but so so you you go through the whole the way the paragon one went through and i'll go through the run get it after yeah, yeah. So the Paragon one was very much like you're being used. You can still fight back. You can still help us win this thing. And it ends with him saying, "I tried," and he shoots himself in, in the head. Right. And so yours, I imagine, was a little so, different. <laughs> yeah. So the intimidate one is instead of like trying to like get through to him that he is indoctrinated and like you know this the same way you were with Sarah. It's like there's one way for you to solve this. Uh, 
the Intimidate one is more like berating and mocking him about like, you know, you you thought you were strong enough to do this, you failed humanity, and so what ends up happening is that the elusive man, like, he's getting, like, gradually more angry and frustrated, and so what he does is he pushes Anderson out of the way. So, like, Anderson's, like, not gonna get, you know, as Keaton shot, and runs straight into Shepard's line of fire, and then you're gonna run again and interrupt to shoot him. Oh, wow. Huh. So you only get kind of the Saren solution if you do the Paragon stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. It was kind of weird how this moment, like, so closely mirrored Mass Effect 1, in a way. Like, I... Like, there are the ending of this game from that Ilos run up to this point just feels mm-hmm. so very Mass Effect 1 in a way. It's all full circle. Uh-huh. And so then we have this kind of moment where, you know, we're, we're sitting there bleeding out with Anderson, and eventually Anderson goes. And we're all extremely sad because he's the best. You know, it's. Uh, it's dude has been fighting this war longer than literally anybody. And yeah. So it's like you know you want him to have that like moment where like he can he can live long enough to see the fruits of his labor. Mm-hmm. But it's like it's like I, I put in my notes. It's not fair, but it is appropriate that he goes out here like at the very end. I feel like it's like extra sad too because of like you know you've met Sanders and like I felt like in this game you actually got a mm-hmm. sense of who Anderson was as a person. And stuff, but yeah, and that there was a life that he wanted to have for himself. Yeah, it's like his last line is, uh, "You did good, son. You did good. I'm proud of you." Yeah, and then like Shepard, then Shepard says, "Thank you, sir," and like looks over, but like he wasn't, like he was gone before Shepard even got a chance to respond. Yeah, it's, and so then Shepard, I think at this point Shepard's also starting to like feel it, um, that they're yeah, they, like they. Like, they put their hand out and realize that, like, there's, like, blood all over it. And so, like, this whole, like, this whole exchange with the elusive man got me three times because, like, in the seconds, which, like, okay, when I shot the elusive man, I started crying because, like, it was just, like, this figurehead of this series. Like, I just, I just finally have met him in person and I just shot him. Like, the, like it, it's more like the, fina- the finality of that, like, got me in that way. Like, not that I, like, love the elusive man. Like, I wouldn't, like, I didn't cry for the same reasons I did Morden or Thane, but it was just, like, realizing like it's, it's just one of those things where like you realize this is the end like the elusive man is dead in front of me mm-hmm. like just like the realization of that and then once anderson says you did good i'm like that got me again and then when shepherd realizes they're like about to bleed out i got that was like the third time and it was just mm-hmm. oh god th- th- this this game was exhausting <laughs> like physically exhausting as well as emotionally and so it's at this point that I always like to remember that this is where things go kind of bonkers because as, as we are starting to fade, we hear uh Hackett over the intercom saying it's not working. It's like the crucible is not firing. It's something on your end. And Shepard kind of struggles over and is trying to figure out what's going on while also like falling down and passing out. And then the magic carpet ride, <laughs> right? Right up into the, I, crucible. I call it an elevator. I, I like calling it the magic carpet because it looks like a magic carpet. Uh, that's, that's mm. the way I like to see it. Also, because we're about to go on a magic carpet ride. <laughs> um, it's gonna be a trip. So we arrive at the top. We are mysteriously less bloody than we were before. Like Shepard's looking a little bit more cleaned up. Not like good. They're still like clutching their side and all that. But a lot of the blood and like burned armor and stuff is gone, which I thought was strange. Um. Maybe that was just in my version, but... 
I don't. I mean, I've never noticed that, but like, I'm not. I, just, I'm not saying that it's not possible. Yeah, I just, I just noticed it because I was like, huh. But we meet the catalyst. So as we learn, the catalyst is not even necessarily the citadel. It's well, the citadel is the catalyst, but it's more like the home of the catalyst, and the catalyst itself is the thing controlling the reapers. And so here you have a note about the extended cut. I'm going to let you talk about this for a little bit because I couldn't remember how this scene went the first time I did Mass Effect 3, and now that I have so much more context, all I remember is that a lot of the stuff talked about here I did not necessarily fully grasp the first time around. So the first time around, and I think... I want to say there's a podcast early on in this before I ever got to Leviathan or anything where I was talking about my frustration with this moment, not knowing yet the things that Leviathan eventually explained and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, because my first time through this very much felt like, oh, there's like a magical ghost child here that empowers whatever decision you make. Like I didn't fully connect that it was the, that, that this was the thing and that this is what the reapers were and that's kind of like that's maybe what the extended cut with leviathan goes on to explain a little bit more but i'm gonna let you take it from here a little bit so let's 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 first get to like the end of the sort of like the intro conversation before you get like any dialogue options Mm -hmm. so this thing says it's the catalyst it appears in a kind of ghostly-ish form of the child that we saw die on earth and it says, I, I control the Reapers, they are my solution. And he got, look, let's try and break down what he says. The Reapers are his solution to chaos, which is brought on by organics that create synthetics that eventually go on to betray their creators. And so the the entire purpose of the cycle is to round up organics, create, make them into Reapers, which preserves them in it's the way that the, the cast believes that it does as well as allows new life to you know rise up and have its have its own the, kind the, of like know, time in the sun right and then so Shepard can be like i think we'd rather create our own futures without your influence and then the cast just says no you can't without us to stop it organics would constantly be caught in the cycle of creating synthetics that destroy them and you know basically a self-destructive cycle so i want to we're, we're in it this is this is it yeah, so we're, we're here talking now. about we're talking about the ending of mass effect 3 now <laughs> um well i mean so do we want to talk a little bit about maybe some of the logic that that goes into this because uh, as we learn like so so we'll just talk they we learn about all this we kind of can post to them that like oh so yeah we've met the leviathans we saw what you did to them and they were very much like they did not appreciate our answer but they understood it and like uh you just kind of get the sense that this is very much like an ai that just believes in its own ways and mm-hmm. but now you have like broken the cycle and so they realize that now that organics have reached this point they say you are the first organic to ever get this far it's kind of interesting that it very much intimates that it knew what the crucible was that it knew that the crucible was being developed they thought it was lost Mm -hmm. but right uh they knew that this was a thing that the organics had been building to counteract the ai and i thought it was interesting that 
they then imply that it, they didn't necessarily seek out to destroy it because that was not the goal of the Reapers. And so right. it's almost like it, it then kind of gives you the idea that this was the end goal, that someone was going to make it this far, and that would signal that right. it's time for a new solution. It's mm-hmm. And there's even, like, there's even this line where like uh, the catalyst says like to Shepard, the fact that you're standing here, the first organic to ever do this means that there's like there are other possibilities here. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of like what's happening here. Like you talk about the catalyst believes that like creating the Reapers is a way to combat the idea of synthetics that betray their creators. Synthetics that betray so, like here's the interesting part because like and we'll we'll really delve into this where we're talking about each of the options, but. Uh, this is not necessarily just a solution for organics. They also mentioned that they destroy the synthetics that rise up. And so it's the idea that this is not necessarily specifically a synthetic idea. This is not synthetics, you know, keeping organics controlled. This is like destroying everything just to make sure that the cycle can continue anew because otherwise they, it would just lead to nothing but destruction and ruin. But... So, okay. Yeah, but we so, can like pick that up. We can pick that idea apart. <laughs> but, so like that's this is what has been okay. Genuinely, like this is where I'm gonna get started on my soapbox. I feel like there was a media literacy problem that came like that reared its head when it came to this ending because like one, if if a universe has been established through three games. And you, your immediate jumping point is to assume that you're looking at something that does not fit it. To me, that reads like a media literacy problem. Like, yeah, it looks like the kid, but it is not. It's clearly not a fucking ghost. It is like, like any universe that has like had these synthetic machines that have some sort of like ability to delve into people's minds, like indoctrination. Yeah. That that an AI could appear as something that Shepard has seen before. Like so, it, so Shepard can process what he's looking at. Why would you ever assume that you're looking at something that goes beyond like the boundaries of a universe that is so well established? I think they just called it. I mean, at least I know I called it the Ghost Kid just because that was an easy way to refer to it. <laughs> but that's that's the thing. Is like there's so much discussion around Mass Effect 3's ending that is like memes and word like catchphrases and stuff that people genuinely like jump on as like what they think this is so like when you say the ghost kid or the ghost child the star child no it's literally like well hold on the star child is is like making a joke about 2001 a space odyssey well i know i know i know but it's like when you're using that as like the actual way in which you discuss these things like instead of like like if we came in here and like we weren't calling it the catalyst like the thing that is called in universe i would get pissed just because like that is like people projecting like an idea that this is somehow doesn't fit in the universe that it, like again is as established yeah and you know whether you like the catalyst or not that's not really the issue like to imply that it does not match the universe as it has been described and portrayed doesn't make any sense to me like it, it is like there's a level of either feigned ignorance or like poor media literacy that i think comes mm-hmm. from that um but another thing is like there is an accusation that this character has circular logic which it does that is like that this again comes yeah, so back to the media, media literacy thing like 
Huh? They, well, I'm saying there are like people out there who are like saying that like it's some cinema sins bullshit. Like it's like, oh, well, you have circular logic. Exactly. They're, really? they're like, oh, we yeah, because like they're like we like of course like the the interesting thing about the catalyst and it colors its entire ending, like every decision, every piece of dialogue. You are dealing with something that doesn't realize that it's like perpetuating the exact same thing it was meant to stop. Mm-hmm. Like this synthetic that thought it knew better than its creators turned against it and is in this like programming loop like it it is it is you know like the leviathan say in the dlc it is you know from like a fundamental standpoint doing what it was set out to do it is preserving organic life and ending conflict between synthetic and organics Mm -hmm. but it also literally turning it to the leviathan to do it so like you're like you want to be like i want like it establishes a truth to what it's saying while also giving you very little reason to fully trust it's, it. It's, I think, like, it, it's a overly simple solution, and I think that's what would make people the most mad about it, because you think about, like, um, boy, I was about to use an example that was super spoilery, but I won't do that. Uh, but you think about, like, so think about how AI has normally been portrayed. Like, there's the idea that uh, like in Terminator, that the AI like gains self awareness and then thinks it has to defend itself by destroying humans because it thinks humans is, are are going to kill it. Uh, that's like usually the way that an AI is portrayed, and I think the Mass Effect actually goes to great lengths to not ever fall into that trap, and instead finds ways to like rewrite the idea of the unshackled AI of the sentient AI mm-hmm. in a way that's more interesting, but. The thing that's incredibly maddening about the catalyst is that it has a very simplistic logic because it was given a task to solve, and the task to solve was mm-hmm. to preserve organic life. It was an extremely selfish task on the part of the Leviathans who wanted to live forever, and they gave it to that, thinking that you know, as the catalyst says, they did not ever imagine that they might be part of the problem, and right, and it saw that as the problem. It saw the proliferation of a single organic race consuming all the matter within the galaxy as a problem. And then it came up with the most effective solution. And that was to simply harvest it like crops. And right. that, like, like you said, it, it, it is a truth. Like it is doing what it is intended to do. It also doesn't mean that you necessarily need to trust it or side with it. And even the catalyst right. itself admits as much. They say that the solution does not work anymore. Clearly, it's time for the universe to move on. And that's what leads us to this moment where we are given the three choices. And they are yeah. uh, destroy, which is we can shoot a conduit and destroy the catalyst, which will effectively destroy all the Reapers everywhere. Right. But, and here's the thing. Every one of these endings has a little catch at the end. Every one of them, even the quote-unquote good one. <laughs> but... If, if such a thing exists. Yes. But you also destroy all, all uh, synthetic life as well. So the Geth and Edie will be eradicated. Uh, mm-hmm. That is the destroy option. The other option you have... And, and so here's another interesting thing that it does. It also shows characters enacting these things but they show Mm -hmm. like the ones who would have aligned with that decision doing it so you see anderson shooting conduit and 
I always thought that was kind of weird the first time I saw it. I was like, what's going on here? But second time through, I was like, okay, I get it. They're kind of giving you an idea of, like, these different thought processes that you saw throughout the game that would eventually lead to this decision. Also, I think they try to flavor your thinking a little bit, and we'll get to that, I promise. But uh, Control is you walk up to this conduit and basically, like, grab it with your hands... And Shepard, their corporeal form dies, but they get absorbed up into this kind of, like, I don't even know how to describe it. They basically get, like, loaded into the Reaper internet and become commander, like, of all the Reaper forces everywhere. So they can control the Reaper. It's what the Elusive Man wanted, but maybe not exactly how he wanted it. I've always described it as, like, they... rewrites the catalyst with Shepard's mind. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Um, And this means that Shepard will physically die and will probably never actually be able to communicate with their loved ones again. And if so, only through, like, Reapers. Uh, The Reapers will continue to exist. Only they'll be controlled by Shepard. And, uh, yeah, that's basically about it. That's how that one ends. And that would effectively, you would think, then end the cycle uh, in that way. Or there is the third option, which is synthesis, which is Shepard lets themselves be absorbed by the massive beam that is shooting up through the crucible, and their DNA being shot out across the, the galaxy would combine would basically turn all synthetics a little bit organic and all organics a little bit synthetic and they'd basically all be one kind of homogenous organic synthetic hybrid that would be theoretically the best of both worlds uh, at the cost of Shepard's life. So. Uh, and, and so and, let, let me, and I will say there is one other option. Well, I was, you I was, can shoot the catalyst. Yeah. And that, well, that just makes no choice. <laughs> That ties. Okay, there are two ways to activate a fourth choice, which is refusal, which is where Shepard can like get on their high horse and be like, "Uh, this is no solution at all. I fight for our right to live how we want." And then so the catalyst is like, "Okay," and disappears, and the cycling continues, and everybody dies, and it ends with Liara's capsules being found on other planets, and eventually the next cycle defeats the Reapers. Mm-hmm. Okay. There there are people that think that that is a principled stance to make. They're wrong. It's incredibly irresponsible. It's stupid. And you can activate it by shooting the catalyst as well. Which is just the biggest brain <laughs> that you can have. <laughs> so I want to touch on... Before we get, like... Do, before we talk about the choices, okay. I, I want to touch on specifically shooting the catalyst, activating the refusal ending... And getting back to Marauder, the Marauder at the beginning, they ended up depleting its shields when you, uh, like, when you fight it at the very end, like, before you go up to the Citadel. Yeah. And that was because Marauder's shields became a meme that was like, oh, it's trying to save us from the ending. Oh, like, okay. So, the one thing I want to point out is, like, one thing I do appreciate about the extended cut is, like, they're, like... All my feelings on the content of the extended cut aside, that to me signals that there was like a lot of like Bioware probably didn't want to make these changes, and like they're doing they're doing things to like 
mitigate the the memes and the the buzzwords that people threw out and like try and text like when people were trying to have an actual discussion about the Senate and they're like oh space child that you like people would upload videos on YouTube of them just shooting the catalyst and like obviously nothing happened before then but the second they put the extended cut in it activates their feelings and it's very much like a fuck you like you like this is funny to you great you you just lost the entire war. Right? That reminds me. I, I hope it reminds me of like end of Evangelion. Uh, you haven't seen it, I imagine, but I have not. Um, there are entire sections at the end of Evangelion, and like like the TLDR of Evangelion as a whole is that Hideaki Anno, the the guy who made it, was gradually just like falling apart as a person during the last like eight episodes of that show. Uh, which was highly, highly reflected in the subject matter and the way it kind of turns about halfway through. Um, and he was so broken by, like, the end of Evangelion. Like, like just the normal end of the TV show. And it's when he came back mm-hmm. to do actual end of Evangelion, which is a movie that was supposed to, like, recanonize what was effectively, like, the last two episodes of the show and then add, like, a true mm-hmm. ending onto it. Uh there's an entire section where he just posts death threats that were sent to the studio over the way that Holy the shit. ending of Evangelion, the, the show, was handled. And at one point, there's just a shot of the theater crowd staring at themselves and things like that. And it was very much like he was framing this all in a way to say, like, screw all of you. I was trying to make this mm-hmm. art that was about my depression and about how tough life is. And you sent me death threats over it. And now you want more and you're like flocking to theaters for it. And it was like, it's the most hostile piece of work I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> and it's... That makes me want to go finish that series because like I got a few episodes in and I just like I I will I will one hundred percent say that like the first half of that show is incredibly like not incredibly by the numbers but it is very much even like you'll see the effect that it had on today's mech anime versus like what came before it was very much like Gundam and you know which was very political in its own way but did not try to deal with personal issues as much and. Mm -hmm like definitely the construction of the Avas and the ideas behind them were very deeper than the things that you would expect from like a Macross. But boy, once you get to like episode 12 or 13, it starts to get really dark and then just goes from there. And it, I mean, you are literally following an artist through their own spiral and it's, it is something else, but that all, that all being said, like Evangelion, you could do a whole podcast about that. Like waypointed. Um, That's, uh, but I bring that up because that, like, hardcore reminds me of that in the way that, you know, they're adding these things that are almost direct responses to the memes. In some ways, you know, like, maybe they say it's, like, jovial or whatever. They're having fun with it. They're joining in on the joke. But you have to also picture these game devs as people who were receiving so much hate for this thing that they put so much time into. Right. So, like, I mean, you, you said that, like, you kind of you finished Mass Effect 3, then you kind of stepped away. So like, were, you, were you at all inundated in that? No, I, um, I mean, so like the extent okay. of my, like, I, I've talked about this before, I think, but I didn't even really start paying attention to gaming media outside of reading the occasional IGN review until probably my last year of college. Uh, I read mm-hmm. Game Informer when I was a kid uh, and I always really liked Game Informer and, whenever I would like think about buying a game, I would look at IGN reviews or maybe I'd like pull up an R games thread that had like all the reviews collected together. But 
Like I couldn't right. name you bylines or talk about like ongoing trends or anything like that. I was just kind of along for the mm-hmm. ride for the most part. And so I, I understood, like I saw, like if you were even near gaming around that time, you saw some of what was being talked about. You saw some of what was being said. Right. And I was also at that point, like later on, a couple of years later, I was like around people who were very much more plugged into games than I was at the time. And you got the sense of kind of what, how everybody came down on it. And even then, you know, like I was kind of like, wow, people are really mad about this thing. I understand, you know, like how all it all comes down to three colors and stuff like that. And like, I, I get some of like the desire to like meme certain things like the Marauder, like, Oh, he's trying to stop you from getting there. And so like, there's stuff in fire emblem. That's kind of like that, where they take, individual npcs from different maps that really stick out just but those are like personality wise like there's my favorite one is the penta axe general who is some random general and some random fire emblem map but he has five axes equipped and so people make fun of this guy he's like he's bringing five axes to the battlefield <laughs> he's gonna kill you five times i'm like um like that stuff is more like fun whereas the stuff with mass effect was always rooted in the idea that this thing that people loved had been ruined and so they and there was a lot of like there were op-eds and stuff at the time that i've now since heard about from certain people who are out there on the internet still for some godforsaken reason and they um (laughs) there were a lot of like calls to action about like oh this was not the ending we deserved and stuff like that there there were like people who were making protests and stuff like that there's a sense of Mm. ownership that they had towards it and i actually i felt a lot of that surface up again around a recent controversy with ooblets which is a quaint indie game that went to epic as an exclusive because they needed the cash like that was straight up they were going to get a better revenue split and they were going to get a cash offer from epic to go there and they said cool we need that to make the game we want to make and then people who didn't even fucking know what ooblets was before this even happened like i guarantee fucking to you none of them knew what ooblets was before any of this started just start rolling in here and being like you're just, this is a crime against games and like sending them horrible mm. death threats and like homophobic and anti-semitic and racist slurs and stuff like that and just th- you see how much of it like really came from that sense of like mass effect three feels like it was the catalyst for that in some ways. And like, Mm -hmm. it kind of started like there were definitely cases before it too, but this was the one that really felt like it exploded and you can always kind of point back to it. And it also was given a sense of legitimacy by the people who were in positions to be kind of like trendsetters who then took that, uh, stance as well and it just kind of led to the sense of like people feeling entitled to the things that they consume mm-hmm. that just echoes throughout all of games now <laughs> yeah because i mean like if you if you set the president that if you yell loud enough something can be changed because like, i mean there's the... the idea that a game is like made to order off a menu for you and stuff like that right right because it, it, like in the in the age of social media, where like because this is at the kind of the very beginning of like everyone like all companies like being on Twitter like asking for feedback on things. But I've like I know I we you and I have worked in games like on a professional standpoint for about five years now. 
maybe it was just the fact that I was like so ingrained in Mass Effect that I don't feel like at least like on like an individual game controversy level that I've ever like been in the thick of something that toxic and awful. You so, can find you can find similarities. I, I don't want to like fully derail you. There's like similarities to things like Street Fighter. Like definitely when Street Fighter Five came out, there was a lot of sentiment around it not being the game. Same with like Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite. But the thing is, like those were multiplayer games that still had esports scenes that were going to be propped up either way. So that like still gives them an air of like, okay, well I'll play it because this is the game I play. Whereas Mass mm-hmm. Effect it, as a single player game, I think that's like why you see the same thing around Ooblets it's a very like defined more like personal experience in a way because this isn't just it's not like a hobby that you do like playing the guitar it's like a story that is meant to cater to you right and so there is that notion that like it it comes into like certain complaints that people have like oh i wouldn't pick any of these endings so like i feel like the refusal ending and that idea that like i should be able to exist outside of the confines of the story that is written to find some other solution for them to just be like okay fine and then like that you lose like that that ending is the like the bad ending like the one that like okay you make your principal stance that you want that you're yelling about but you can't like come up with a solution that exists outside of the narrative Mm -hmm. that has been written Mm -hmm. and so well i mean we can start talking a little bit about the choices now because i think the ones they lay out are about the ones that make the most sense like narrative wise yeah because like, now i was just gonna like i was just gonna cap off like i feel like the change the changes on things like that like the not being able to shoot the catalyst anymore marauder shields the very nature of their free linden that like they when you you can do things that are sort of like making fun of controversy but that that felt very defensive in a way on bioware's part which i don't blame them for like not by any stretch mm-hmm. but it's just like the story, the main, like the story I want out of games right now is I want an oral history on the extended cut. I want to know the meetings that happened, people's feelings during and like before, during, and after the fact. Yeah. Because things like like little alterations like that don't happen unless somebody in the creative room is not on board. Yeah, you have to wonder like how much yeah. of that stuff went down, and so. I guess talking about the actual choices that you can make and it, you know, I do, again, I feel like these are choices that make sense in some ways, you know, you have, so I guess let, let's set it up by talking about, cause we both know we've seen each other's notes. We came down on the same side of things. I think we right. might've like reasoned it a bit differently, but generally we came down on the same side of what we chose. So control was the mm-hmm. obvious one that neither one of us was going to choose. And I would, for me at least this was because i see control as establishing a new power within like a new Mm -hmm. ultimate power within the universe so now instead of the reapers maintaining the cycle shepherd maintains the cycle and the idea that they become this eternal arbiter like could sound nice in theory but this is also the thing that then would eventually corrupt Shepard, like a hundred percent. Like no one goes into this sort of position and doesn't eventually become somewhat corrupt. Or even then, if Shepard is somehow magically the perfect arbiter of all things, people will eventually want to rise up against them because Shepard will still be an imposing force over mm-hmm. the like the progress. You know, they can't. Right. I one of the main things that I felt 
in trying to like think about what ending I wanted was that the Reapers cannot exist in the future. For for right. everyone to advance and evolve, the Reapers cannot exist. Right. For me, it, it kind of goes into like not knowing what the future would end up looking like in the event that control happened because like the, the very nature of the catalyst establishes a truth to what it says mm-hmm. that you know a f- you can't necess- like you can't really plan for the ways in which AI is fallible mm-hmm. so I always like you never know like you know Shepard could go into the control ending with the best of intentions but you don't know like if Shepard could fall into some sort of weird programming logic loop the way that the Catalyst did or if somehow Shepard could lose control of the Reapers one day or you know like it's just the fact that the Reapers being a variable in anything like you said like the Reapers cannot exist for the future to be shaped by the people that live in it so that was always my thing with the control is like I just don't there are too many blind spots Mm -hmm. with it and so I think the one that is maybe the most contentious to talk about we'll talk about next is synthesis which is the idea that all synthetics and organics get combined together and i believe this includes the reapers as well that they Mm -hmm. all kind of like live in harmony and that is maybe the first issue i have with synthesis is the idea that combining everyone together will create harmony because i don't think it would (laughs) so there's like this this undertone to the idea of synthesis, which is like by making everybody the same, all conflict will go away. Choice. And <laughs> exactly. Like there's it's like this idea that it wants to deprive everyone of an identity and like a background that kind of like you know, we are all one people like it's it's those people that are like, you know, this 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 was progressive for the time and say, we're all humans underneath mm-hmm. it all. Like if you want to break us all down into like we are all the same under all like is by by definition calling diversity a detriment to peace which no like diversity is like something that if we have to all be accepting of that is not like it is a very you know like the the, the catalyst is all about this and so like it is a very i don't want to call it logical but like it is a very zeros ones mm-hmm. way of looking at people and culture and the differences between all of us i think it's fitting that the catalyst is the one to pose it to you too because it seems like it is something that the catalyst would come up with as the next solution right because it's like he he positions it as like it's the next phase of evolution which i mean sure you know like transhumanism is not something the mass effect deals with that much but like it is not that does not seem out of the universe for that kind of thing to you know eventually catch on and with things like Edie and the Geth gaining gaining sentience and like understanding of emotion, like yeah, like clearly, like they are headed that way on their own. Huh? You know, I never thought about the fact that outside of like Shepard's body mods for the Project Lazarus, you never really touch on transhumanism. In no. there's like no overt like cyberpunk stuff as far as like body mods and things like that. That's bizarre. Right. I think. <laughs> Well, the thing is, like, a lot of that probably comes down to, like, synthetic uh, experimentation in general in Citadel spaces outlawed. Yeah. So they probably view that as, like, a hop and skip away, and that is why some things that happen in Andromeda happen the way they do, because they have moved outside of the laws of Citadel space. Mm. 
So, yeah. So, but I think the biggest problem, like, I mean, not to say that all those things are not huge problems, because they are, like, from a philosophy standpoint, like, it just makes sense. Like, we call it the centrist ending, like, a joke, but, like, it is very remin- reminiscent of, like, an ideology that everyone should stop trying to divide themselves by what makes them different and just focus on what's the same, because, like, that is very much from a person that thinks that, like, you know, a gay person existing is that culture being shoved down their throat, or somebody that comes in, you know, in cultural wear is like, why can't you just wear and normal to clothes? To like, think you know, in that like, way, like, you have to have a defined set of what is the norm. And, and usually by defining that, you are then establishing an other. Whereas you want right. to have a society that is defined by the others, that everyone is an other to one another. Ah. Exactly. Exactly. So, but, like, on top of that cake of awful, the, the nice frosting of just, like, the worst part of it you don't get to ask anyone if they want this. Yep. Like, it just happens. Because because the catalyst who, you know, comes in at the eleventh hour to be like, this is my solution, this hasn't been brought up to anybody. Like you like, it is non consensual. It is you're altering trillions of lives, like, with the snap of the fingers, or like the firing of a beam, whatever you want to call it. And that includes like life that is like relatively primitive. Because mm-hmm. like if like it, this goes through like the mass relay network. So like imagine like if this had ha- all happened before humans arrived in the galaxy, but the the, ch- the relay is still over next to Pluto, so we would get hit with it and have no idea that this com- this conflict had even been happening yet. And suddenly we're part synthetic, mm-hmm. and people think that's okay, and that's like. I know that, like this is a video game that this is an abstract concept that like does no actual bearing in the world but like that that is like all the centrism of it aside like that you think it's okay to alter every person in the known galaxy without even so much as asking mm-hmm. them. Yeah, I, I agree with you there because it's like it you know no one discussed it and and it kind of puts Shepard on this weird pedestal that I don't think fits them very well because Shepard, you know, has been a leader for most of the series, but then like you, no matter whether you're playing like Paragon or Renegade, Shepard always seems to kind of err on the side of doing what's right for the largest amount of people unless mm-hmm. you do like some of the really bad choices in right. this one, which maybe then implies that synthesis could be the answer for somebody who, you know, did all the bad stuff on Tichanka and all that. But then at the same time, synthesis is supposed to be like this martyrdom that you are giving away your body to improve the lives of everyone it's just it it's the one that sounds really good on paper because it's like oh you know everything will be magically happy and okay and the second you start to think about what that actually means for life as it moves on past this it doesn't solve anything the reapers are still around and also it's like it, it doesn't explain what will happen to the Reapers if the Reapers will then just integrate into society or not. That that's what it appears to be, and that's like and to, like well the idea that not that these things that much, like, like slaughtered everyone on all these planets are suddenly now like hey Barney like, the I Reaper how you doing? <laughs> like I don't know if you've watched it like the extended cut version of the scene the husks get up and oh, start like I don't like that processing oh, that's weird i really don't like that it's like there's like a horror yeah. aspect to it that the game does not sell because like and like we i guess we could talk a little bit about the sort of like the end 
the I epilogue think we kind of have to at this point yeah. because like right because like they portray this ending as such a like golden standard of what could have possibly happened like Edie Edie narrates it she's like I'm alive and we can evolve so much for like it it borderline sounds indoctrinated at some points because like she's just in awe of this new life that the galaxy has and it's all because that fucking catalyst sold Shepard on it because nobody else talks about it like because like again it, like it exists like it is a solution to one person in this galaxy's problem and it's like obviously indoctrination theory does not hold up anymore but like it feels like the like a reaper won you over yeah like like the catalyst is still in power I mean, which it essentially is at this point cuz yeah cause, like essentially the, the catalyst is alive in this this is the only ending where the catalyst lives uh-huh. because it's replaced by shepherd to control and destroy obviously destroys it and, and like again like going back to like once you understand what the catalyst is it is clearly this broken eye that's in a loop of its own programming that is like a whole another layer of just like this thing won this thing that is like broken in its code like to the very basic core of its being won Think out back to like what and this is said on the normandy with her last thing like talking about her self-preservation instincts like how do you know that synthesis mm-hmm. isn't the catalyst's self-preservation instincts right and, and the we'll get and we'll like, like let's put a pin in everything we're saying again because like I have an overall wrapping feeling on what I think makes the Mass Effect 3 ending kind of great, which we will get to once we finish talking about all, all the well, other yeah, yeah. So we've got. Yeah, Destroy let's talk about Destroy. Point. So, like, Destroy, I also think is imperfect. I mean, all of them are imperfect. And Destroy yeah, like by, has maybe, right. like, one of the biggest drawbacks of all of them, which is, you, yeah, yeah, you, you straight times. up just destroy all synthetic life. And... That is like that is a tough one to choose, and mm-hmm. uh, I think if you're looking for something that would be like the most altruistic, it would be the synthesis ending because then at that point, like only one thing is dying, and that is Shepard. Um, and control in the kind of the same way, like at least ostensibly, because like you are Shepard self sacrificing to not because like in. This isn't necessarily portrayed in the extended cut as well as it was in the original ending, but control is the only one. Like it, like it, both from like the people perspective, like it doesn't kill the Geth. In terms of like the actual damage to the Citadel, there's none, mm-hmm. because like the the beam of synthesis and uh, destroy breaks the Citadel like into pieces, and like the, the, it's seen repaired later. But like in control, it just closes the arms, and it is like this. It is it, like it's like a cocoon of itself. Like it does not take any damage from mm. what happens yeah with destroy you are effectively destroying um and it is a very like brute force thing yeah and it's it's not just the geths and the reapers and Edie. it like the mass relays uh-huh. get blown up well they don't get completely um, the, blown they, they get well, like, yeah they, they get damaged, damaged yeah. like, which they then imply anyways right. is fixed but yeah which was another well that's what my friend yeah uh yeah but it's the so, one I went with, and I'll say I'll say why is I mean it's a, it's effectively what I've been talking about up to this point, which is that I think it offers the most freedom to the people that survive, and it also completely mm-hmm. breaks the cycle of the Reapers, and right. it gets rid of the Reapers as an option. And I just always 
Like, as much as I'd like to think that Synthesis could solve everything, I just ended up feeling like I have to make sure that the Reapers are never... The Reapers and the Catalyst have to be destroyed for right. people to evolve, and the only way that's going to happen is if I destroy. Right. So, for me... Well, again, we came from very different perspective, and it feels very, like, Paragon versus Renegade, because... So... Like I said, or I said this as far back as like the Novaria episode. The idea that my shepherd, that all of this is like very much wearing on him. Like in terms of like the, the renegade decisions that he's made, like which has included genocide with the Ragni, which has included like giving the base over to Cerberus, like things that have like morally questionable. But for like the longest time, he's been telling himself, and I've been telling myself that this is like a crude solution, which will ultimately help me get. To where we need to be, but I did go for like the more paragon thing. Like I did, uh, I did not sabotage the cure for the genophage. I did not uh, just like let the Geth die on Rannoch. To me, it was always like he is doing these things because like he knows it's right, and like I, it is this long overarching arc of like Caden being this sort of like person that brings him back to like what is good for the people versus what can get me like get my job done. Here it's just Shepard. It's just him kind of going back onto his base instincts of like, I need to find a a very efficient solution that is not going to leave all these blind spots of like what like that's what that's my problem control. I don't know what's going to happen as soon as Shepard gives himself up to be the new catalyst. Since this is all its various problems that I don't want to talk about again, but destroy. I know what happens when I blow up this. I know. Yes, I will lose the yes. Yes, I will lose Edie. Yes, you know the Citadel and the relays will be busted up. But I know the Reapers are going to be gone, and I know in my heart of hearts, as much as I have seen Edie and Geth grasp concepts of humanity, that is a program learning as it observes. Yeah, and that that kind of sucks. Because, you know, like, the whole idea of Mass Effect 3 is the idea that these programs have gained sentience, that they are more than a program. So I still like to feel like I am consciously committing some level of murder when I do this. But at at the same time, like I said, it's the only option I feel like gives that freedom. And synthetics can return one day. I think it's heavily implied that they would anyways, but... Without right. the shackles, it'll be yeah. Without else. the shackles of the Reapers, and also with all the things that all the different races have learned up to this point, like I don't think the the Quarians would repeat their past mistakes. I don't think right. that a lot of these institutes would repeat their past mistakes where they give them the second opportunity. I like again, like you said, Paragon, but like I'm believing in the best of the people that are left behind. So, right. um. So now we got to talk about the extended cut, because normally at this point, if it was just the ending of Mass Effect 3, we would have, you know, kind of this explosions shot out through space, uh, you know, in our case, in Destroy, the Reapers fall, everyone's happy, and the Normandy is, like, outrunning the blast as much as it can, and then kind of crash lands on an unknown world, and that's, you know kind of a little symbolism for like oh it's a brave new world and all that and it would have ended right. there and uh would have been yeah. perfect 
would have been incredible. And like, and let's talk about let's talk about the extended cut ads before we get into why. I know I said the suicide mission was the worst thing to happen in Mass Effect. <laughs> I feel like it is the extended cut epilogue, not not the additional catalyst stuff, not the the pacing breaking uh, evacuation scene. It is this short, like two minutes montage of the way the galaxy is after each of these things. That is like the. It, it is so rea- it is obviously reactionary to people being like, "Well, what happened next?" But I, I wish that somebody in the, in the creative team of Bioware would have had like the balls to be like, "No, we are keep like it is gonna cut to black and that is it." But let's talk about I those. Find it, those I find it really funny that what ended up happening here was Mass Effect had the same ending construction as Animal House. You know, <laughs> like, it's the same thing. <laughs> like the other weird part is, so a lot of the closure that we get here in this extended cut is not even really necessarily a lot of closure, because you get these you right. get these scenes that would normally happen, uh, which is the, your person. It, well, this normally happens: the person of interest or whoever is about to place your name on the wall, right? Yeah, that mm-hmm. normally happens in the original ending. Oh no, no, that. Oh, that was extended cut. Okay, that's yeah. fine. Leave that in. That's that's a fine. Yeah. Last shot. Um, but it's but the extended cut that, is all like the illustrations with the voiceover. Yeah. Oh boy. Mm-hmm. Which in this case, that's it's and destroy attack it. That is like what what frustrates me. Like, sure, these scenes are. Like in theory, they're great. Like you, you see Rex and Grunt come back to Tuchanka. The, the well, okay. I mean, if, okay. Like in premise, like the idea that like you get to see Grunt and Rex come back to Tuchanka and see Eve like withholding Krogan babies and the Quarians back on Rhino. Like that idea is great. I don't think the execution of them is great or necessary. But like, sure, it's it's cool to know that you know. No, it's not even. Okay, yeah. let me... Let me... Okay. My... One thing that I, I loathe about these epilogues, it comes up with the absolute most happy, perfect version of all of these yeah. features. Like... So, like, the, the entire point of the destroy ending is, like, you will destroy the Reapers, but it is gonna be at the cost of a lot. But Hackett literally has the line, we can rebuild everything that we lost. Okay, right, then was there any sacrifice? Did I make a sacrifice here by choosing this choice? Like, I, and then, like, the the synthesis is, like, the same thing, where, like, you see the Reapers helping to rebuild, (laughs) and everyone, like, just so happy to be there. (laughs) And then Control is, like, you see the Reapers, like, rebuilding the mass relays, but, like, you see Shepard in, like, like Shepard Catalyst inside the Reapers, like to be like Shepard is the one that's controlling them. Spirit Shepard, Force Ghost so, Shepard, finally, yeah, joining <laughs> Thane in the Force Ghost afterlife. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> let me now that we've kind of like that. That is like the extent of those epilogues. Like you, you do see like various things that happen in the further on future, and it's it's whatever like it's like again like it just falls into like what frustrates me is that they had to spell everything out mm-hmm. 
because here's here's what I thought was amazing about Mass Effect 3's original ending was that because it cuts off where it does and it is ambiguous, we all got different endings. We all got to imagine different futures for the Mass Effect universe. Because, like, yeah, some of us probably had, like, very grim ideas of what was going to come next. People probably had more optimistic ones. But now we each have these three endings. All of us. Like, I... And what makes that so frustrating for me is, like, Mass Effect has always been a, a series but me is about, like I said earlier, filling in the gaps of, like, what the game doesn't tell me and what I can picture that my character and his relationships meant and, like, what they... how they shaped up, what they looked like. And I feel like an army of awful, terrible people on the internet took that from me in, like, what the ending of Mass Effect 3 looked like and, like, where the galaxy was going to go, where my... Shepard would go, where Caden would go, where everyone would go. Because now, I have to share the same ending with everyone who picked Destroy. I get that. Like, and I feel like, and I feel like that was probably the point in cutting it off there, because, like, there is, like, ambiguity, like, like I even, like, called it, like, it's like Schrodinger's cat. Like, every possible permutation of what can happen is true, because, like, you don't know what happened next. Like, it is ultimately on the person playing to decide. And that is that has been very much in the spirit of Mass Effect to me. Like everyone has Shepard, like yeah, but nobody's Shepard is ostensibly the same as anyone else's. You know, mm-hmm. like everyone has a different relationship. They made different choices. They have different viewpoints. But now we have all these same endings. Like they're every like you and I won't have like different outcomes to discuss now because we both know we got the same ones. Like every. Like, I didn't need Bioware to tell me what happened next when I could have spent years wondering and theory crafting. And like, I didn't even need to get, like, in arguments about it online. It's just something I can internalize. Like, it is up to me to, like, wonder if my, like, was my choice mm-hmm. right? Like, did I make the right choice for the galaxy? But now we all know all of them turn out fine. Like, all, all of, like, my fears about control, they don't pan out. So like why why would I not pick control like the thing that does not that effectively impacts like the, the least amount of people yeah exactly it's yeah I, I totally and agree with everything it, you said about it like cheapening the decision and then also like giving everything a happy ending means that it, it like why would you pick other things then and and really like um one quick thing I want to know before I bring something up um destroy is the only one that gives you the pros like scene where you see Shepard move in the rubble which like implies that Shepard survives and right so I've all I've also kind of always seen destroy as like the quote-unquote canon option because I feel it's the one that people pick just because it lets Shepard live and so it is like a very selfish option in that respect like to yeah and to like touch on that like we and we've implied this heavily in past episodes I feel like to me, like, to hear, like, a very Paragon person that has just, like, the option, like, I'm just gonna destroy the Reapers, that's what I came here to do. Like, that feels very much, like, an excuse to get the the very, very end of the game, which is Shepard breathing, and that immediately most credits. It is. And, yeah. like, and that's, that's the thing that's, again, that's very frustrating to me about, you know, this, uh, this, these new endings, or whatever you want to call them, is it's, like, it gives people... Like, I don't want to even say, like, a an out on that respect. It's just, like, you see the galaxy 
bounced right back to what you did. So, yeah, you can make that that excuse. Like, oh, I, I the entire game I was leading up to controlling rooms. Like, I know people that, like, agonized over that for months, and probably still to this day. Like, I don't want to do destroy because I don't want to kill the guest because I'm a very Paragon player, so I picked control for this reason. And I don't, like... There's so much, and this goes back to what I was talking about, like, with the suicide mission and how I feel like it made people think that there is a way to game the system and get the best possible ending. And that's why, like, there are people that gravitate to destroy, because they think that it's the best ending, just because Shepard lives, despite the fact that you have to commit genocide to do it. And it's like, all these complaints feel rooted in that idea that people want to be justified for what they do in these games. Because they want, like, an epilogue that shows that everything was fine. They want to be able to pick the ending that has, like, Shepard breathing in the rubble because they think that that... Because it has something, like, that's slightly additional compared to the other two. Because, like, I mean, yeah, technically because of that, the Destroy ending has the most... Like, if you, like, breaking down to, like, the seconds on something that's on screen, it has the most content. Which is, I mean, you know, it's like five seconds of seeing Shepard breathe in the rubble. But it is still something that people perceive as... I did the thing that got me more video game. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that's what frustrates me about this idea of, like, a canon ending or, like, the right choices. Like, there was no reason for us to ever have that discussion until the extended cut came out. Because now everyone has to know, or, like, at least pr- believe that there is an ending that is objectively the best one. Which I just don't think exists. And I don't think... It, and I, it certainly didn't exist before the extended cut. Because... Everyone had to live wondering whether they did the right mm-hmm. thing or not. I think one of the, so I do want to mention that we kind of breezed through this, so I didn't get to mention it. But we did have uh, one of our patrons, uh, Ruben Vanderlund, finally sent in a question for us to talk about, and this was actually the question: was Do you think Just do you time. think the DLC after the extended cut helps with redeeming the Mass Effect three ending? And if so, what are your thoughts on it being paid? Was this was paid? I thought it was mm-hmm. or. Isn't a cut was not. Oh, okay. So, you're, but so this is about Omega Leviathan and Citadel. Yeah. So um, on that note, I will say that like, I'm I'm actually fine with it being paid. Uh, I think the extended cut being free, mm. you know, that is what it is. They couldn't make you pay money for that. That would have been just a whole another thing. But I'm fine with like Citadel and Leviathan are such huge pieces of content that are so much more than just adding on to the ending and informing mm. the ending. Like, yes, they yeah, did that, that's... but. There was also so much more in those that, like, that had to be paid because people had to spend time and money on it, and, you know, that doesn't, like, grow off trees. And people deserve to be paid for the hard work they put into this because they obviously clearly put a lot of love into this. So that's how I feel about that. Yeah, and my perception was that, like, yeah, Leviathan and Citadel, by, like, the nature of what they were, did sort of, like, you know, help alleviate the blow, the, the, the perceived blow of the ending but I don't think that was ever, like, the intention in making them. I don't feel like... Because, like, the extended cut was very much, like, you know, the press releases and such were about, like, we are reacting to criticism and looking to sort of alleviate certain concerns and problems that people had, where I feel like Leviathan and Citadel just were, you know, the things that they were, and it was, like, the affecting the ending in sort of, like, a redeeming way was kind of just more, like, happenstance. Yeah, were... I mean, sure, Leviathan... Like, Leviathan was, you know, like, a, you know, an origin story for what happens in the ending, but I don't feel like... Like, I didn't play Leviathan, and I was like, this is Bioware continuing to try and make good on the ending. Because I felt like the extended cut 
was basically the extent of them trying to do that. It's uh, I think it did just fine, and they even touch on it with a second question that they sent about modded endings. There have been people out there who have like used the the PC version of the game to kind of cut together cutscenes at the very end to change the order that they happen in. So like you can even see, I think one of them has it so that like the last scene of the Citadel DLC is actually what plays last there. Um, where they're like, oh, okay. you know, it was the best, you know, it was, it was a good ride, it was the best. Right. Like, and that feels like a very fitting way to, like, end the game as well. And I think it, but mm-hmm. I also think, like, Bioware designs it all with that in mind, because that was basically, like, their send-off. And so to use it there as, like, an ending right. to the overall game instead of what Citadel was, which was, like, a send-off to the Mass Effect trilogy, feels a little bit cheaper. Right. Um, it's, like, I, my opinion on the, a lot of the mods, I feel like they don't fix what the game ever needed mm-hmm. fixing with. Because, like... You know, the extended cut addresses, I think, at least the problems. They'll, again, like, I was never a person that was like, oh, the ending needs to be fixed. But, like, I was like, if you're gonna do something, like, some of these things are fine. Like, the extended dialogue with the catalyst, I think, is good. And as weird as the scene is in terms of its placement, the uh, the goodbye, like, right before you go up to the Citadel, is a scene worth having. And I really like the memorial scene at the end, where the love interest or whoever uh, Shepard was closest to I think puts their name on the memorial wall or does not in the event of a destroy ending um so yeah I just I I have like I felt like the ending was already tampered with in ways I didn't feel like I needed that I didn't want to go looking for other ways that somebody else somebody else's perception of what was wrong with it could have been imposed Mm -hmm. on it yeah, at the end of the day, it is like it's a fan imposing their interpretation. If that's how they want to feel, that like in Shepard in their last moments was like thinking back on Citadel or something, like fine, you know, do that. Because but... I mean, I like I like what they had in the big like in the actual game is like you get these like brief flashbacks to different characters like as Shepard's mm-hmm. making that final choice. Because I, I think it's always Anderson, a character that died, and then your love interest. Uh, for me, um, for me, for destroy me... it was Anderson, Edie, Liara. Yeah. Yeah, that was the thing. Is like Edie, I know, always shows up for destroy because like you are Shepard thinking on like my decision is going to impact that person, right. and so like for me it was Anderson, Edie, Caden. So it's uh... like I, I prefer that to like rather than thinking back on like the that scene because like I feel like that scene like exists in this um, like Citadel itself exists in this weird pocket dimension that doesn't feel like it has any bearing on the yeah, actual game. Yeah. So I didn't need it to be like inserted into that section. Mm-hmm. So to kind of put a bow on the season, on the on the Shepherd trilogy, um, has has playing through all of them again changed your personal ranking of these games? Um, I think it might have, in that like I've like all of the technical jumps and head that Mass Effect Two was. I feel like, especially. Come, like coming from like the places that I typically write about games, like the things that I write about games, I feel like my opinion on that game has worsened. Oh, okay. Like through replaying them now, like when I am a little more learned and critical in ways that I wasn't necessarily back, you know, nine years ago. So, you know, I mean, I in terms of the actual playing of the game, like I would always prefer Mass Effect Two over Mass Effect One, but I think in terms of the way that that game made me feel sort of a other mm-hmm. to it. I'm not like it kind of has pushed me away a little bit more so like my ranking would be three one two oh, okay. but like in spite of like 
especially considering how critical we were of the actual play of Mass Effect 1, like, I love all these games dearly, and yeah, yeah. that shift does not indicate, like, my utter dislike of Mass Effect yeah, 2. Yeah, it's not like you something like that loathe it or anything like that. It's just, like, if you were yeah. to rank all of them. It's just, like, I'm, I've... Right. Like, and I've, I've just grown to a point where, like, I realize things that bother me about it even more now than they did for back sure. then. Um, for me personally... I would say that I'm going to cheat a little bit. I would say that Mass Effect 3 Citadel specifically is like my favorite piece of Mass <laughs> okay. Effect media there is. Um, That's fair. Like, it's just so, so, so good. And and really feels like it brings Mass Effect 3 up in general for me and my perception of the series to the point where I would say that mm. I would go Mass Effect 3 Citadel, then Mass Effect 2, uh, then Mass Effect 3, then Mass Effect 1. Would, would be my lowest mm-hmm. um i i still like and again i still love mass effect one there's so many things i really love about mass effect one but i think that's the game that most shows its age and also um mm-hmm. and it definitely has like there are just parts of that game where y- it feels so weird to go back to it now like the the sense of scale is so much smaller uh, the things you do are right. so much less varied. There's not as like the side quest stuff is very, very fetch questy, very like basic RPG stuff compared to the more fleshed out loyalty missions that you end up doing in Mass Effect Two. Like loyalty missions in and of themselves were this huge innovation for for Mass Effect. That playing Mass Effect right. One without them, except for like you know Rex's armor quest, I guess, uh, really. <laughs> really just feels off and and i I like the story of mass effect one a lot i actually think mass effect one tells an incredibly like coherent and like good point a to point b story is very like basic sci-fi but it tells it very well whereas like mass effect 2 i think tells the most interesting story the most nuanced story and i think mass effect 3 tells like the most grand and epic story uh -hmm. that's kind of how i like feel about each one of them but I definitely came out of it with a greater overall appreciation for Mass Effect, and now I'm really interested to jump into Andromeda, because playing all these again didn't just give me like the inkling to want to play some more Mass Effect that I haven't played already, but I also just want to see, like, you know, I've gone back through all this stuff with such a critical eye that I want to see Andromeda through the end to see how much of it really got addressed throughout Andromeda. Like, how much... Right. You know, I've been sitting here like singing Dragon Age's praises this whole freaking podcast series, and like, uh, <laughs> I want to see how much of that stuff, like as you've told me, has like panned out in Andromeda in interesting right. ways. I think there's a lot of things that Mass Effect did that drew in people who normally would not play these types of games, and then when right. they went to Andromeda, they got something that they weren't expecting in that respect. And I, I know that there are, like, very mm. real reasons to not like Andromeda uh, that have been voiced out there. Uh, but I think there's also, like, part of me is suspecting that there might be a weight of expectation foisted upon Andromeda that w- that it could not ever meet because that was not ever a realistic thing to do. And so, like, maybe going back to it and viewing it as, like, a Mass Effect 1 mm. will be... A healthier critical right. perspective i don't expect to be any less down on it than i was the first time but maybe i'll be able to better voice why mm. uh and that's that's what i'm hoping for right so this is also the announcement that yes we are doing andromeda we are starting next week which 
I I I I need to get to playing. <laughs> um, that's gonna be my weekend, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and right now, like, I won't lay out the entire plan just yet because obviously we have some guests that are, uh, you know, we never want to like announce a guest and then have it like set up some expectations that they would show up when they can't. But I will say that our first two weeks are pretty laid out. Uh, this this coming week, uh, August twenty first, we will be playing through habitat seven nexus and tempest so that's a big like chunk of the early game but Mm. when ken and i were talking we felt like that would probably get a lot of the early stuff out of the way unless like start to really like dive into the the hardier stuff so if you're listening to this podcast and already excited by the three hour length that we have already (laughs) oh boy uh we're not quite there yet, but I do have a question for you okay. at the end, so okay. we're going to make it three uh, hours. And then the week after that, August 28th, will be EOS, so that'll be that contained all in one. Uh, and then we'll announce more as they come along. We'll have some guests, obviously. We're going to have some returning folks. We're going to have some new folks. We've got people on the schedule already. We've got more people we're going to try and bring on. Uh, and just, you know, let's let's do the question first. Let's do the question first. Okay, uh, so in the spirit of the original okay. ending, I want to ask you, where do you think your shepherd went after the Reaper War? Oh, like if they lived through the destroy ending? Try and mm-hmm. rebuild Thessio with Liara. That's legit. Yeah. I like that. It's, I think that's 100% yeah. like they would return to Thessia. They would, like, Liara would be made a matriarch and Shepard would just kind of be like the... The, the hanger on and they would they would live a nice life on Thessia rebuilding you know they might they might go on some expeditions every now and then because you know it's it's Liara she always wants to go like find some artifacts and uncover some ancient ruins but I would think that Liara might even consider leaving the Shadow Broker life behind and just moving on yeah. to rebuilding the Asari homeworld and also then you know like maybe doing more historical work in the hopes of preserving the memory of like races that were lost during the Reaper invasion, like the Batarians and things like that. Right. Kind of back to her yes, roots. Very much. I think even yeah. by the end of Mass Effect 3, her character was starting to lean that way. Right. I mean, watching Thessia like had to have been a wake up call. Like I can't be off worrying about mm-hmm. everybody else in the galaxy when my home is right, right here. Yeah. What about you? What about you, Ken? Where do you see your shepherd going? I've always imagined that because like if like we I talked to Garrus and I was like I feel like my shepherd is ready to maybe put like spacefaring life behind him move to the citadel with Caden who Caden I imagine is probably going to stay on his teaching biotics route which I think is a solid place for him to be that is like low risk but also like very keeping of like his talents and his past and like sort of like how Jack did as well mm-hmm. like you know taking what she learned and making sure that like the future has a better way of going about these things. And then Shepard, I feel like for a long time he'd, you know, he'd be like set, he'd live off the royalty from the vids like Gareth says. But I do feel like after a bit he would probably get antsy and I figured I always thought that he would maybe go into CSEC and like feel like he could be at least like he has some of an what of action but like the risk level is significantly lower yeah and then maybe have like a kid or two around anderson's old apartment Mm -hmm. oh yeah you gotta live in anderson's old apartment both in Mm -hmm. memory of anderson also because that place is just great 
it's a good pad um so that i mean that ends it for the mass effect trilogy we still have andromeda coming but i just want to thank real quick everybody who has been listening who has tuned in it's been such an incredible journey um we've had so many amazing guests Mm. we've had so many amazing listeners who have all reached out and said wonderful things uh like ken and i truly cannot express how much that means to us it's we started this thing as just a passion project for the two of us to talk about a game series that we love like we've been doing for ages i never personally thought that we would do half as well as we've been doing and i also like the idea that we got to the point where people want to hear more from us where they want to hear us talk about Andromeda, where they they're sending in (laughs) questions for us to answer where we're bringing on these amazing guests like the ones you heard at hopefully the beginning of this podcast um at the time of recording we may still be editing that together but hopefully that treat is in there by then (laughs) otherwise ken's gonna need to cut this part out (laughs) and um it's just such an incredible experience you know we we're critical we always are and we want to be critical but the thing is we do this from a place of love because in some way the mass effect trilogy just came at the right place in the right time for a lot of us and it still speaks to us to this day it's something that just stuck with us and we still want to talk about and i think that says so much so i want to thank the listeners i want to thank all our incredible guests and i also just want to thank the teams at bioware that throughout the years put these games together uh you know we may sometimes be critical of you we may sometimes question the things that you do but we still love the thing that you made and we still celebrate how much of an achievement it was to this day i don't think anyone can even match up to it this day the the scale of the thing that was put together it is i i was telling ken before this in in my notes and stuff that i think if you made a time capsule of games and you wanted to send it 50 years into the future to show them what games were like you'd have to put mass effect in here there's no question so now the only question is ea why haven't you made the mass effect trilogy why isn't that a single thing that we can buy and put it together and put it in that time capsule preserve it forever come on put it on a switch put it on god forbid you put it on the switch that'll be it for the shepherds here that's all for us but you'll meet up with some new folks next week